Hey everybody, welcome back to uh, Histories and Mysteries with Jessica and Janelle. I am in fact Jessica. And I am in fact Janelle. Coming at you from Vaccination Eve. Woohoo! I'm a frontline worker, so I'm uniquely poised to like become a disease vector that takes down Halifax. So they put me up at the top of the list. It's gonna be good. <laughs> it, it, it's less for your health, although your health is important. You you basically have no immune system. Uh, and it's more <laughs> for the health of everyone else around you. You are just a plague rat waiting to happen. <laughs> I'm doing this for you, people. These are the sacrifices I make. Oh, yeah. I think we're like at around... 13% of the population, which is not ideal, <laughs> considering that we've been doing this for like three months now. <laughs> <laughs> We're getting there. We're slowly getting there. <laughs> and that was a slow rollout. <laughs> Holy shit. <laughs> <laughs> it's been a really good time to write satire news. I write satire news for the Beaverton. Think the Onion, but more Canadian. It's the Canadian version of The Onion, and every week we're just like, haha, the vaccination rollout is going poorly, and that's just been content creation for the last, like, two months. <laughs> just, yeah, that's the thing, is, it's such a perfect example of bureaucratic incompetence, because there is no way we didn't see this coming. It's like standing in a field, watching a baseball come at you, closer and closer every day. For a year. <laughs> and yet it still manages somehow to smack you right in the face. <laughs> How is this going worse than roll up the rim to win? How does a coffee company distribute cars better than the government distributes vaccines? How? Every year, thousands and thousands of specially printed coffee cups are distributed to the caffeine-hungry people of Canada, and we cannot <laughs> figure out how <laughs> to get medicine into hospitals <laughs> the entire time this covid nonsense has been happening we could just rest on our laurels occasionally glimpsing down below the border and going oh you americans when will you ever learn and this has just destroyed any sense of superiority because the americans are laughing at us this is embarrassing <laughs> they don't even have a national health system <laughs> but you know what screw the rest of you i'm gonna be immune because i work with the homeless for a living and i am uniquely poised to just absolutely burn down the halifax we're doing well yeah, i think yeah. we only have like 19 cases in all of nova scotia and i could ruin it at any moment at any it's moment. in everybody's best interest that i be vaccinated <laughs> Here, here's my bet. Here's my bet. You're going to get the COVID vaccine. You're not going to get COVID. You're going to get rabies. And <laughs> you're going to give the greater Halifax area lockdown. That's my bet. Some fish is going to jump out of the harbor and give me rabies. That's, <laughs> that's how Janelle goes. <laughs> that's what's going to take you out of the gene pool. That's uh. probably true. <laughs> I'm fine with it. I'm in my peace. It will not be COVID. <laughs> I just, I just don't want the vid to get me. That I've spent so long hiding from it. That would feel like a real irony. Oh boy! But yeah, <laughs> it, it's, it's a weird thing where like Canada has like one consistent, generally very competent healthcare system, and the Americans just have this monstrous Borg-like Hydra. <laughs> and for some reason, that's working out better right now. <laughs> The, the people who put their own fingers back on with duct tape are lapping us for vaccines. I don't understand how we got here. <laughs> just a, it's just a sad day in Canada. But uh, today's episode, 
getting away from current events into very, very non-current events because it is, in fact, Jessica Week, so we're going way back into the past. (laughs) That's what we like. Uh, Today's episode is on the contentious 19th century trade relationship between Britain and China. More specifically, it's about how the actions of a Scottish horticulturalist named Robert Fortune upended the international balance of power in the mid-1800s through one of the earliest examples of modern-style industrial espionage. This is the shit you people live for. Applaud me. <laughs> you people wouldn't have stuck with- What episode is this? I I don't even know at this point. We're in the 80s somewhere. We're in the 80s now? Yeah, yes. you people wouldn't have stuck with us through- 81 episodes. This is our 81st episode. You would not still be here if you didn't live for this obscure shit. So, buckle up. Yeah, if you were not just a pack of massive nerds, <laughs> you would have left long before now. <laughs> oui, c'est vrai. Je suis un ananas. Now, in the uh, towers of uh, Edmonton. I'm not a I don't speak on both sides. I do not use crack cocaine, nor am I an addict of crack cocaine. things I have always found about the mental associations we have between countries' cuisines with plants they didn't actually have access to until the modern age of sale, like uh, Italy and tomatoes, or Ireland and potatoes, which are both from South America in origin, or Mexico and rice, which is very Asian. And one of those associations has to be Britain and tea. Tea was popularized among the British aristocracy in the 17th century due to its reputation as medicinal and likewise as a form of conspicuous consumption. Basically, an old-timey juice cleanse. Tea tastes like lawn clippings, and that is my most controversial opinion. It is that, mmm, chlorophyll. Mmm, I mean, I will defend my hot bean water to the death. (laughs) (laughs) you're a coffee fiend give me Uh, five cups of coffee or give me coma (laughs) (laughs) Janelle has two types of days days where she's had her coffees and days where she has splitting headaches and wishes for death (laughs) if you can't hear the sun you haven't had enough coffee While traditional Chinese preparation of tea doesn't involve either sugar or milk, the practice of sweetening quickly developed in Britain, where processed sugar was likewise considered a mark of wealth and prestige. Ooh, imports. Green tea was likewise preferred in China, while black tea gradually took, overtook green tea in popularity in the West. The British acquired tea first through trade with the Netherlands, then directly from trade with China, though initially as an afterthought to the primary objective of obtaining Asian textiles and silk, which itself began as an afterthought to trade in spices. In 1721, British Parliament passed the Calico Act, banning the import of Finnish textiles like chintz and calico, the fabric, not the cat. Uh, This was a protectionist move intended to shield domestic textile manufacturers from competition, especially with India. But it likewise forced importers to switch a large degree of their attention from cloth to tea. As it gradually dropped in price, tea then spread to the middle class as a relatively accessible luxury that allowed them to mimic their social superiors. Uh, In particular, tea drinking began crossing class lines, 
through Enlightenment-era coffeehouses, popularized first by Oxford intellectuals, which were a unique place in an otherwise rigidly hierarchical society where people from broader walks of life mixed and discussed novel and sometimes subversive ideas like science and civil rights, all for the entry fee of a penny. Women showing their ankles. <laughs> <laughs> Unlanded men having the vote. Oh, don't. Do go on. <laughs> oh, you're such a scandal. <laughs> <laughs> During this period, T developed such an indelible association with respectability that it didn't fade even as lower and lower segments of British society joined in on the trend. In particular, the ritual involved in proper tea preparation led to a complex etiquette around its consumption, as well as an association with civilized manners and propriety. They're still like this today. <laughs> Literally everyone from the gutters to the crown drinks tea, but it's still a classy thing to do. And they make it the same way. They all have the same neurotic hang-ups about the correct way to make tea. Mm -hmm. My mother's from England. I have the... My mom's side of the family are all still there. She's the only Canadian. And, like, if you heat the water in the microwave to make your tea, they will throw you in the Thames. If you put the milk in before you put the tea in... You're basically in a stone. In the Thames. It's all in the Thames. If you <laughs> if you mess up the tea, they have to drown you. <laughs> and that's actually what really caused the American Revolutionary War. The British weren't offended that the, the Americans didn't want to pay their taxes. Really, it was the fact that they didn't boil the, the water in the Boston Harbor before dunking the tea. <laughs> <laughs> they didn't put in a splash of milk afterwards. <laughs> My favorite thing about British culture as a whole is that it's just like... A hundreds of years arms race to look fancy. Like the the very concept of an English accent is just people sounding more and more pretentious on purpose to try to sound higher class. Oh yeah. The original English accent was probably something closer to the modern American accent. Mm -hmm. But the upper classes wanted to sound fancy. And so they put on a voice like this. And then they just started doing it naturally. <laughs> Every British newscaster that you listen to has received pronunciation, which is something they were taught to do. It is not an accent found in nature. <laughs> oh, that's that's why everybody in the 40s has, has that accent that Jessica does constantly. Yeah, the transatlantic accent. The transatlantic accent doesn't exist, though. It's a, it's a complete artifact of radio and television. Nobody speaks like that naturally. It was something people put on to sound fancy. Nobody has ever talked like that. When, uh, when I pretend to be a man from the 40s and I start to sound like this, that's no one talks like that. No one has ever talked like that. There has never been a child that looked at its mother and said, like, hello there, mother. I sure would like a boob. <laughs> um, <laughs> give me a little bit of that milk. <laughs> it was something that people would look for when they were looking, when people were going into the entertainment industry. This was like a selling feature that you could put on this transatlantic received pronunciation accent. You could, you could have this like faux British lilt to your American accent. It, all of these accents are just artifices of, of, it's just people making shit up. It's people wanting to sound fancy. Same with the tea. The English have done this. I can say this because I'm half British. Everything they do is fake and then they all imitate each other. <laughs> it's a complete pretense. And it's a complete pretense that basically <laughs> took over an entire island. It's a whole country of like trickle down snobbery where whatever like the upper classes do, eventually the lower classes will do and be just as persnickety. <laughs> like they... 
You've got to make your T right. You've got to pronounce no R's. We have very firm rules about these kinds of things. Or you are not but a ruffian. (laughs) (laughs) Riff all with a second R that's basically a crime. (laughs) This is why we grew up in North America. We were descended from the Europeans that were not wanted. (laughs) Yeah, they, they just, they took one look at my ancestors' rugged, country bumpkin french and they're like out 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 (laughs) if you haven't eaten goose liver floss in the last hour i get out of here you're not wanted in this country you make me sick (laughs) well the english feel that way about their tea if you are not sufficiently fancy about it you're offending the queen (laughs) prince philip will visit you at night and eat your soul You've you've angered the mother of all Britain. She shall count for your life force. So we're gonna have some letters this week. That's, that's <laughs> the reason why the queen is so old. She just she sucks out the life force of Britons who are unwilling to prepare tea properly. I've actually heard too, and I mean this could be a complete thing somebody made up, but one of the reasons that English people are so particular about not adding the milk first, because it it honestly, truly, genuinely does not matter what order you put milk into a tea, is that cheap teacups, you would have to put the milk in first because putting putting hot liquid directly into a cold teacup, a cheap one will crack it. And it was a sign of status. If you put your milk into the teacup first, it meant you were using the cheap china and one cannot have that. This, again, this could be a complete horse nonsense, but this is what I was taught by my British relatives, that if you if you put the milk in first, you are a ruffian using cheap china. As a blue-collar person, like, most of my understanding of manners, like, it comes from a real practical purpose. Like, you do not uh, take everything you could possibly eat the first round you uh, you serve yourself food. Because... If you're in a big family, that means that somebody's not eating, (laughs) you know, potentially. (laughs) Like, it has a very clear consequence. But a lot of upper-class manners are just about not doing poor shit. (laughs) And not coming across as, like, a classless bumpkin who doesn't have money. Like, most of these things come from an association with poverty. (laughs) Yes. Rather than any real relationship to manners. It's it's less about respect and more about respectability, <laughs> which is not the same thing. I googled it. I was not speaking lies. That's genuinely the reason why English people consider it off-putting to put milk in China old old-fashioned teacups. Only high-quality ones can stand putting boiled water into them. Suddenly, cheap ones will crack. That's that's it's all about looks. It's all about pretension. And <laughs> who knows if they the British even liked tea? They may have. They might have just imported it because it was expensive. That's kind of how chocolate took hold in France. It was expensive. I don't know that anyone actually enjoyed drinking hot, boiled, bitter cocoa powder. <laughs> it didn't taste good to begin with. And it's not even like coffee where like it'll give you a buzz. There, There is some amount of co- of caffeine in black tea, but it's it's not nearly as much as, as coffee. Uh, what it is, is that dry tea actually has more caffeine per pound, but uh, it will also make a smaller number of cups. So the finished cup of coffee has more caffeine. Oh. Um, but per dry weight, tea, specifically black tea, has the most caffeine. But that doesn't matter because you're not fucking eating it out of the bag. 
<laughs> you shouldn't. <laughs> One, you're not scooping coffee directly into your mouth and just like chewing the beans and then spitting them into hot liquid. Like, <laughs> uh, well, maybe you aren't. <laughs> <laughs> Speak for yourself. <laughs> Janelle has needs that cannot wait. I like to exfoliate the gums. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's like insofar as you're not eating it dry, dry weight doesn't matter. Like, but with a prepared cup of a prepared cup of tea will usually have less caffeine than a prepared cup of coffee. Interesting. I've I've never tested my caffeine tolerance on tea because tea tastes like the liquid you would skim off a compost pile. So <laughs> <laughs> I'm getting controversial tonight. <laughs> Oh boy, yeah, your 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 mother's gonna listen to this, and you're gonna be disowned. She's not gonna <laughs> she's not gonna make eye contact. You are not her daughter anymore. How dare you! Jamel? I'm out of the will. <laughs> <laughs> because the government-backed British East India Company had been granted a monopoly over trade with India and China, they likewise had a de facto monopoly over the import of tea. So tea drinking began to develop a patriotic tinge. The British government, which at one point during the 18th century collected nearly a tenth of total tax revenue from the sale and import of tea, heavily encouraged the marriage of tea and nationalist sentiment. Holy shit. Yeah. <laughs> it was a fundraising scam? That's why British people like tea so much? <laughs> no, it was basically like war bonds. Nudging a wink, like Uncle Sam wants you to drink some fucking tea. <laughs> drink tea, or your kids won't be able to read good. Like, if you want, if you want roads in schools, drink up. <laughs> drink tea, little Johnny, or it's off to the mines with you. <laughs> Who are we kidding? It's off to the mines anyway. <laughs> That's true. It's there, there, champ. Go lose some fingers in a textile mill. What a horrifying <laughs> time to be alive. <laughs> oh boy. But the, the working classes had joined in by the 19th century because a warm cup of tea and sugar provided them with a high-calorie stimulant to push them through the rest of a long shift. Likewise, tea was more palatable when diluted, and the price of tea was cheaper and more stable than coffee, especially given high rates of tea smuggling. Oh. <laughs> Eventually, it had a lot to do with the fact that they could not afford to make a decent cup and like coffee diluted taste gross. Yeah, I'll give it that. You can dilute tea much more effectively than you can coffee. <laughs> uh, eventually, even paupers and beggars drank tea. Incidentally, this probably had the unintended consequence of reducing quite a bit of waterborne diseases common to the era, like cholera, through encouraging the British people to boil their water prior to consumption. Huh. That's what it took to prevent, like, mass death from diarrhea in 19th century yeah. London? D? <laughs> Honestly, I, I'm, I'm not even willing to bet this isn't some form of natural selection. <laughs> Just the only British people who survived their god-awful sewage system <laughs> were the ones who were boiling their water prior to consumption. <laughs> yeah, I guess if you didn't like tea, you just died. <laughs> like, I mean, you're just basically drinking straight shit from the Thames. <laughs> just a mm, feces cocktail. <laughs> about the end of it, Britain came to consume about a, a fifth of the total Chinese tea exports per annum. What? Which is... <laughs> Wait, wow. hang on. That's a lot. That's... Yeah. <laughs> it's crazy. That is a bananas amount of tea. Like, they are out-consuming the rest of Europe. The Americas. Like, they are sucking this stuff down. 
and this is just tea exports. It's not counting the tea that's just being consumed in China. Still, that's a lot of tea. The sheer bulk of tea consumed by the British eventually led to a problem. And that problem's name was Trade Policy of Qing Dynasty China. See, the reason that the East India Company's monopoly on trade with India and China meant a monopoly on tea is because China was the only country that cultivated, processed, and exported tea. <laughs> the options are real limited. They're really limited. Like, there is some tea that is being cultivated in some areas of India, but, like, it's it's not an industry <laughs> in India at all. <laughs> China's the only dealer in town, and the British have a heavy addiction to this. <laughs> uh, and not only didn't the British Empire produce the vast majority of its own tea, to a significant degree, they didn't even know how. They didn't even know what precisely distinguished green tea from black tea. Europeans at the time classified the two as a separate species of plant, <laughs> and they are not. <laughs> They are not different. You might use a different strain to process into black tea than to green tea, but they're the same fucking plant. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And after much experimentation in the, in the 1830s, uh, the company managed to cultivate a supply of the Assam subspecies of tea native to India. But Assam had a str far stronger and maltier taste than Chinese tea and poor per acre yield, as well as receiving a poor grade from British tea brokers, and eventually they gave up on the idea. Like, they had failed to match the quality of Chinese tea, lacking the understanding of Chinese cultivation and manufacturing, and access to better seed stocks. Uh, much like with silk, that knowledge in its entirety belonged to China. It's so incredibly British to just take a thing that another country is good at, not learn how to do it at all and just all. take it for themselves and be bad at it. That's <laughs> I actually don't really associate Britain with agriculture at all. I mean, I'm sure they they grow potatoes in Ireland and they have sheep in Wales, I guess. But like, I'm trying to think of what Britain actually exports and all I'm coming up with is children's fantasy novels. I don't <laughs> <laughs> I mean that that's the thing about Britain is it's like like I don't I don't want to be overly broad here but they're basically a barren rock and <laughs> I don't associate them with like wheat fields. I don't know, I could be completely out to lunch but like I'm trying to think like what does Britain export and all I've got is like the chronicles of Narnia. I really don't <laughs> <laughs> Just whimsical children's tales. Neil Diamond is British. J.K. Rowling is British. Uh, Beatrix it's all, Potter. It's children's fantasy novels all the way down. <laughs> <laughs> Frog and Toad. I have no idea what else they make. Yeah, I'm Peter half Rabbit. English. <laughs> <laughs> One of the things that you might notice about a lot of uh, imperial powers uh, from the the 19th century. And I would even include places like Japan in this, is they often lack a lot of resources on their own soil, which is what pushes them to get a little bit nosy when it comes to their neighbors. Yeah, they kind of just had to go invade everybody. Like, Yeah, like, in terms of Britain's natural resources, they have a lot of coal. They have a lot of peat moss. They have a lot of, they have a lot of swamps. <laughs> um... <laughs> They had a lot of yew trees, and then they made them all into bows and arrows. <laughs> the top export of the United Kingdom is cars, which is not a thing I would have guessed if you had given me the rest of the night to think about it. <laughs> it's 
cars, gas turbines, and crude petroleum. Their fourth biggest export is gold? What? <laughs> uh, it reminds me of one time I looked up Estonia's main exports and imports. Their main ex- import was computer parts and appliance parts, and their main export was also computer and appliance parts. And that just feels like a... I just think the entire nation of Estonia is a drug front at this point. (laughs) Part of the issue was that while the Europeans had a great deal they wanted from Asia, China quite simply did not give a shit about what most of Europe had to offer. (laughs) What about what most of what Europe had to offer? While Europeans exoticized and fetishized Asian goods and cultural products, the Chinese saw Westerners as culturally inferior and just weren't interested in most external cash crops, manufactured goods, or slaves. Uh, Like, they, (laughs) they had enough of, 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 of a fucking labor base. Like, Indeed, the Qing dynasty of the late 17th century onward had taken on a project of gradually phasing out slavery slavery and serfdom within China for various social, political, and economic reasons, and had almost abolished the practice by the year uh, 1730. <laughs> Look, the Chinese, they invented, like, gunpowder, they had paper making, they invented, Movable like, type. the printing press. They did not need wet fried fish in a newspaper. There's, no. There's nothing. <laughs> we nothing that the english had that we could offer them they <laughs> just take a tea and go yeah <laughs> we're not that interesting that, that was kind of the attitude is just take your tea and go they've had like fireworks and flush toilets since like before the time of christ like they just they did not need us <laughs> i'm like this is this is a five thousand year old empire <laughs> that has had movable type for decades they've had poetry since before back when the european were shitting in hobbles they don't care <laughs> the english stopped dying of cholera by accident because they liked tea more it's, you know, not sure there was just that much to offer <laughs> like the, the chinese accepted a small amount of trade in terms of luxuries like fur and consumables like cereal grains rum cheese and american ginseng which is a related subspecies to the subspecies to the Chinese and Korean hmm. variants, uh, but it was I did, did I did not, not know even there was know an American there was American ginseng. ginseng. That's, <laughs> that's news. I blew my mind. I apparently that's the one I the only one oh. I've ever eaten. <laughs> I was, so I was just wondering. I wonder if I've been eating that all my life. I wonder if I've never had like actual Asian yeah, ginseng. Probably. probably. Probably never had olive yeah. oil. No, it's, there's it's a lot just... of things I've been eating that are fake my whole life. <laughs> The Chinese. Oh, sorry, repeating myself. Um, uh, but uh, all that China was willing to purchase was never enough to correct the massively disproportionate trade balance, uh, especially not for the British, who lacked Americans' easier route to China as well as their supply of fur and ginseng. Uh, Americans also had a lot of Turkish opium, but like that's besides the point. Like <laughs> well. the, the, the American, like the, the, the English were not the only ones involved in the opium trade. Let me tell you, no, uh, <laughs> that was a global effort. Yeah, we 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 went a long way to do to the Chinese what I would call a reverse intervention. <laughs> like all the European powers got together in China's living room and then just like shoved opium right up their ass. <laughs> What a, what a truly like, we're really con- we're really concerned about you China you're not doing enough drugs <laughs> truly England has made such contributions to the rest of the world 
We take your um, shit and give you centuries of drug problems in exchange. <laughs> You're welcome. Like It's just, we steal your art and give you trauma. That's all that we're good for. <laughs> they were exporting something. It may not show up on the balance, but they were giving back. <laughs> I mean, they paid for this somehow. I assume with unspecified commodities. That's how they're paying for all of uh, this. Specifically silver. Uh, the Chinese took payment exclusively in silver bullion. A precious metal with limited supply. Uh, early on, the European powers were able to cover the cost of Chinese trade with their own and their own need to mint currency by exploiting mineral-rich colonial possessions. But in the mid-1700s, wars between Britain and Spain eventually resulted in a loss of control over many of those same colonies, such as the United States and Mexico. Oh my god, did they invade North America so they could have silver to pay for China. Like, what? Essentially, essentially. The well, not, UK well, not. produces nothing. <laughs> yeah, no. Like, a big reason, a big reason why they were so dependent and wanted to keep hold on to the United States and Mexico so badly was because they needed the silver to pay for tea. <laughs> <laughs> oh my God. <laughs> it's so we will invade as many countries as it takes so we don't have to go without tea. Like, <laughs> like you need to understand the British obsession with tea. They killed a lot of people for their leaf water. <laughs> they, they just, they were willing to bring the whole planet down as long as it didn't yeah. disrupt their breakfast. I will topple empires before I go out without a hot couple with bangers and mash. <laughs> <laughs> oh my god. This is this is this is to satisfy the the specific refined palate of a people who eat beans for breakfast. <laughs> like this <Yeah. laughs> people died for this. <laughs> like and British cuisine, here's the thing, is notoriously one of the most unappealing and hard to export in the world. And I say that as someone who has in fact enjoyed a lot of British cuisine, but so much of it just no one else wants. <laughs> oh, I like it, like, but I should not be trusted. It's <laughs> right? like I like some I, of it. Do not feed me blood Blood pudding. No, no. Yeah. Don't feed me steak and kidney pie. Get all that away from me. Mushy peas. No, 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 mm. no. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Leave the sausage. Put the sausages on the floor and step away. <laughs> yeah, like some of it has its own charm, but like it, there's just something deeply ironic about a country that invaded the entire world for, for spices and then refuses to use any of them. Like it's. <laughs> The only country in the world that enjoys British cuisine is Canada. We fucking love it. Yeah. <laughs> we love it. We import their we food. We love it so much, and we shouldn't. I didn't realize how many of the things I enjoy are English until I moved to America. Uh, the United States has mm -hmm. like a, a widespread ban on importing UK food products. So you guys are getting fake Cadbury. <laughs> Everything, <laughs> all your chocolate products are made in the United States, which depresses me. But uh, mm. because English chocolate is great. That is one stolen food they've, they've very much refined. But uh, no, like I, I like I like a lot of British snacks. I like your cheese and onion crisps. But everything I enjoy was invented like in the last 50 years. Before that, it was pure nonsense. Yeah, <laughs> yeah I don't... The, tra the traditional stuff, they were just making it work the best they You're could. You're just frying tomatoes with at 7.30 in the morning and eating lard, you crazy kids. <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
Uh, I mean, it'll it'll make you feel warm, but it'll kill you before the age of 60, but it will make you feel warm. <laughs> so this uh, loss of colonial possessions forced European traders to take silver out of their own home economies, reducing the overall amount available to domestic commerce, restricting growth, and stoking anti-Chinese sen- uh, resentment. Uh, China, meanwhile, began to experience inflation <laughs> due to the sheer amount of foreign silver <laughs> that they were taking in. <laughs> They're like, oh, yeah, we got all the silver. Just now what? <laughs> all of it. <laughs> and it's to the point where, like, it started to devalue it as a commodity. <laughs> Just an absurd <laughs> amount of silver. They're just sitting around with wheelbarrows full of it going like, okay, now what do we do? <laughs> now what? Because uh, it, 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 it's, it's not even that useful. <laughs> like, there are economic uses for silver, but, like, you don't need that much China. You don't need a lot of it laying around. And, it, it, like, this was a pretty steady market by this point. I mean, yeah. the British weren't going to just get tired of tea. <laughs> no, it, it's been going on hundreds of years. And here's the thing. They didn't even need it for minting particularly. Chinese, like, everyday Chinese currency exchange took place in copper. Yeah, they they figured the out currency thing... long before anybody else showed up. <laughs> mm-hmm. Like, the, the only thing you would be using silver for is paying taxes. Um, that That's about it. And you only do that so often. <laughs> only so often. Like, you don't just pop down no. to the store to pay <laughs> some generally. taxes. Um... That's not that's something you casually do on a Sunday evening. Um, so, uh, China, China uh, sorry, in, in 19... In, I'm going to do this constantly. In 1838, the East India Company lost its monopoly to growing populist uh, sentiment, so, growing populist and free trade sentiment. And while it remains the largest private player in the region, competition cut into its profits significantly as did its expensive and expansionist wars and famine-causing agricultural mismanagement in India. British traders struggled to find a good to sell to the Chinese people and thereby shift the balance of trade. Hmm. But they found their answer in opium. Oh, no. <laughs> That's not a good... We're not heading in a good direction with this. Uh, yeah, it's basically the same as if I had said, you know, like, you know, really, like, there was a lot of economic problems, you know, between, between, you know, Mexico and, and, and the United States, you know, really just this huge trade imbalance. But luckily, the United States managed to solve it with guns. <laughs> <laughs> just, <laughs> just selling guns across the border. <laughs> crystal, meth, and pornography. Like, this is, oh. China had had opium as early as the 6th century by way of trade with the Arabic world, but it never truly caught on as a life-destroying social ill until the 17th century with the introduction of North American tobacco, which popularized smoking as a method of ingesting opium as well. Oh. Uh, with good. Eh, fun stuff. Cultural exchange. Mm. Uh, with addiction widespread, the Yongzheng Emperor banned the sale of opium in uh, 1729. That didn't stop Western traders. That has never stopped uh, anybody on, from selling it drugs. Has <laughs> never, ever. Like, laws stop me from selling your people drugs? <laughs> no. No. Because here's the thing about drugs drugs are a highly inelastic, meaning that their demand for them is basically constant. <laughs> Uh, they're a highly inelastic, uh, usually lightweight, 
uh, good that you can mark up up the ass. Well, opium <laughs> like, is like hilariously addictive. <laughs> I mean, oh, it's and hugely lucrative, which is a bad combination. <laughs> The consequences of not taking it are pretty dire. It's not... You have to take it every day. It's, it's miserable. miserable. You'll get opium sick if you're dependent on it. People eventually... People with opium habits often, like, they don't get high on it. It's just that they have to keep taking it to prevent opium sickness. To prevent withdrawal. It becomes a matter of, like, avoiding very mm -hmm. unpleasant illness. And you'll pay anything for that. And they have to take it every day. Like it's it's just it's the the only the only medicine that makes you better is the exact same that thing that made you sick. Opium is the basis of heroin, and I don't know if you've ever seen anybody come off heroin, but they're not having a good oh, time. It is, <laughs> it is not pleasant. No, and, and, and with withdrawal won't kill you, but like you're not gonna like it. You're just gonna wish you were dead. Well, actually, withdrawal from uh -huh. heroin can kill you, but I don't think withdrawal yeah, from like opium, unrefined though. opium can kill you. Yeah, definitely like, don't like play with heroin because I told you it was not legal. No, <laughs> stay away from <laughs> that. <laughs> it will kill you. <laughs> um, uh, but early on, the Portuguese were the primary culprits. But by 1773, the British had cottoned on and overtaken them as primary opium dealer to China. <laughs> Not to be outdone. Not to be, never to be outdone. Here's the thing. The Portugal is like Britain's older, less ambitious brother. Like everything Portugal did, Britain did after and way more, way more intensely and horrifyingly. <laughs> like even having an empire at all. <laughs> <laughs> We will not be bested by you people. You speaking your fake Spanish, we will not. <laughs> uh, the East India Company had taken control of the Bengal region, which sits on the northeastern edge of the Indian subcontinent, and had already had significant opium production. The company did not personally smuggle opium into China. Rather, what they did was control all the cultivation of poppies and refinement of opium in Bengal and auction off the finished product to independent traders the company had licensed to take goods from India to China. Hmm. Which is really just, like, it, 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 there's, you're putting more middlemen in there, but you're still basically responsible. <laughs> like, you know where it's going. Well, and I mean, the the funny thing is, is that they had to do this because you can't, it's not even a matter of not knowing how to grow opium in the UK. You can't grow opium in the UK. It's No, it's just, it will not thrive there. There's a reason you don't see a lot of people having backyard opium. It's, you can't grow it in your yard in North America. I'm sorry. It's a very finicky plant. It's a poppy. Yes. Just yeah, sure, like you it's, know. It, it's by its nature. It is a, it is. At the very least, you have to be somewhat subtropical. Like it's native to the Mediterranean, but yeah, you do need like a a tropical or subtropical or a, a temperate climate. You need, you know, it, like in the in the modern day, most uh, most modern uh, o uh, opium is grown in Afghanistan. Yeah, because like, it's very easy to bribe a farmer who has nothing into planting some opium for you. Mm -hmm. But uh, but it does. It grows well in a hot, humid climate. Yeah, History often conflates the actions of the British government and the East India Company, but the truth is a tad more complicated. Because the British government underwrit a great deal of its private traders' ventures overseas, and the East India, India Company's trading was such an immense tax stream, the government often felt compelled to act in the company's defense in order to protect their shared interests. 
the East India Company frequently ended up operating as a semi-autonomous arm of British foreign policy and, in many ways, a parallel government with its own laws, taxation, and managerial civil service in the colonies it set up for business purposes. It was a wink-wink, nudge-nudge arm of the British government. <laughs> yeah. Like, it, it, it had a lot, like, and there's a lot of relationships between the two. There are people who passed back and forth. Uh, it has a heavy lobbying relationship. It's not completely not the government. <laughs> like, it's not the government, but it's not not the government. <laughs> they had a social license to operate. It's, yeah. you know, it's... Like, it, it, that, that, that's sort of the weird thing, is like, when Britain first colonizes India, it's as the East India Company. And... <laughs> That's the case for most of the history of it. But, like, at the same time, it's like, but you kind of condoned it, didn't you? You, you, you said it was fine. <laughs> um, so the surreptitious trade of opium went on for decades, becoming bigger and more brazen year after year, including a 500% increase in volume between the years of 1822 and 1837. Holy shit, that's a lot of opium. It's a lot of opium. That's a lot of opium. It's <laughs> a lot of opium. That cannot be good. To the point where it had actually started to tip the balance of inflation in the Chinese silver markets and increase the price of silver. <laughs> and as taxes were paid in silver, this couldn't help but stoke resentment among the Chinese people as de facto tax increases. Um, none of this sounds good. This is None of this is heading to a good place. No, like by 1838, an estimated 4 to 12 million Chinese citizens were addicted to opium. Ooh. At the height of Chinese, like, and like, this is not including domestic production. Like, this is just imports. At the height of domestic production in, I think, the, 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 the early 1900s, like, a single province in China, Sichuan province, was producing... 12,000 metric tons of opium. Oh, oh, oh. Which is, for context, more than the entire global production today. Oh my god. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you when you're not refining it into a product like heroin, when you're just sort of taking it as like, I can't, they, I don't remember what the name for it is, but they used to take it as like a kind of paste. Yeah, basically like a sticky You put it ball. on your teeth. You used to be able to tell opium addicts because it would blacken your teeth. You, you It absorbs through the gums pretty well. Yeah, it's resin. Everywhere opium goes, it is a social ill. I don't think anyone's ever been like, yay, 12 million of our people are addicted to opium. Like, that's just... It's not a fancy substance in most places no. that it goes. As of 1757, European traders had been restricted to a single area of a single port, the city of Guangzhou and the far southern province of Guangdong, in order to control the presence of armed foreign ships along the coast. Uh, Russian ships were similarly confined to the north. Uh, in Guangzhou, they could only trade with the Kohong, a guild of traders that had an official monopoly. Back then, the city was romanized as either Canton or Guangzhou, of all things, and this became known as the Canton system in English. How is that? How is that anglicized at all? If you're going to anglicize somebody's <laughs> city name on them, at least make it something you can pronounce. It's <laughs> right. Quang <laughs> Chow. Don't just give them a fake Chinese name. That's rude. <laughs> <laughs> 
Yeah. Uh, in in look here. Here's the thing. A lot of the stuff in here is going to be reflective of the times, so be ready for that. <sighs> uh, in in 1839, the the Dao uh, Dao Guang Emperor appointed Lin Shishu uh, as Shishu as imperial commissioner and sent him to Canton in, in order to put a stop to these flagrant abuses. While other court officials had called for legalizing production of opium within China and taxing the trade, Lin Seixu was a highly moral man and fierce anti-drug hardliner. He published an open letter to Queen Victoria, calling on her to put an end to the smuggling of opium on ethical grounds, accusing foreign traders of being covetous and wicked, taking valuable goods from China and sending them poison in return. Uh, Victoria did not respond to this letter, possibly because it was lost in transit, though it was later reprinted in the London Times. The men had a point. <laughs> yeah, not say. entirely wrong. <laughs> not entirely wrong. Men had a point. I, I can kind of see where he's coming from with that one. Because, uh, like, it, it, it's weird, like, looking at this from, like, a modern, like, drug standpoint where I would probably say, like, hey, yeah, like, you probably shouldn't have an opium market, but like you should be providing people with substance they're addicted to in order to keep them out of crime and keep them out of poverty. But like, yeah, they were basically selling them poison. <laughs> I mean, it seems problematic when one person is profiting off of making as many people as possible in another country hooked on opium. Yeah. It seems exploitative. <laughs> Highly. <laughs> like, e <laughs> even, even from, like, the most liberal pro-drug standpoint, this is kind of fucky. Yeah. There's a big difference between, like, having a progressive stance on drugs. You can still be like, hey, it's bad to, like, ship metric tons of it to another country. <laughs> yeah, with just no regulation. With the profiteering off of yeah, them. with the express purpose of getting as many people hooked on it as possible, like that. Yeah, fucked. you're you're actively introducing it into new populations in order to get more customers. That's not progressive. That's just drug pushing. It's a nuance. Mm. Uh, but in, in Guangdong, Lin instituted large-scale arrests of Chinese opium dealers, lent on corrupt local officials, and offered foreign companies tea in return for their opium stocks, but they refused. Finally, Lin officially cut off all trade and instituted a quarantine of the small segment of the city traders were permitted to occupy, trapping 300 Britons where they were for six weeks until they relented and surrendered their stores. 2.6 million pounds worth of opium, over half the overall annual import into China the year before. And that's pounds as in weight, not as in money. <laughs> Also, if we'd done this episode last year, I'd be like, wow, six weeks is a long quarantine. <laughs> and now I'm just like, they caved after six weeks. They were weak. Children. <laughs> Try a full year. <laughs> you know nothing of the pain. Admittedly, they didn't have the internet. <laughs> Fair. I would have cracked a long time ago. <laughs> it's the cat videos that keep me strong. <laughs> Uh, this was with the encouragement of the British superintendent of Canton, who promised to compensate traders for their losses in terms of stock seized. Lynn, likewise, had troops seize opium from British ships moored nearby. 
Chinese workers then fouled the opium with lime and salt and dumped it in the Shinuda Bay. And that's lime as in the substance, not like... Little spritz of lime. <laughs> the fruit. <laughs> mm, make it zesty. <laughs> lime the stuff that will kill you. Yeah, like lime the stuff you use to dissolve bodies, not the stuff you shove into your beer. <laughs> <laughs> They did not make opium tacos. Little like, spritz of lime. This, here's the thing that, that bothered me about this, is, like, the, the Bay of Hong Kong has dolphins. Oh. And I, so I, either those dolphins died or they were just high as balls. They just got a bunch of dolphins <laughs> messed up on morphine. Oh. <laughs> Tragic. Just a bunch of smack addict dolphins <laughs> in the... In the mouth of the Pearl River. Tragic. <laughs> Just, they'd never think of the real victims in these historical stories. <laughs> uh, this was both a huge blow to the supplies and profits of British opium traders and a massive miscalculation on the part of the Chinese authorities, who failed to fully appreciate that while the average British citizen may have sympathized with their mission and the British government itself could have hardly contest the confiscation of illegal goods on sovereign soil, to have its citizens threatened and held and their property seized without charge or trial was insupportable, causing mass public outrage and calls for the government to intervene. They have likewise failed to account for the growing military power of the Europeans, in particular the British Navy. China had rejected formal diplomacy with European powers decades before, and thus there was little middle ground between doing nothing and outright war. How do you forget the British Navy? That's like their whole thing. They're an island. Well, a very aggressive <laughs> island. That's their whole Super deal. aggressive island. Well, the thing <laughs> is, they didn't forget them. They just didn't understand them. Because this is also when there had been a massive shift in their technological prowess. Like, I'll get into it in a second. Tensions rose throughout the year, and in November 1939, war broke out, first between the Qing Navy and British merchant vessels, but soon likewise with the Royal Navy. China had had little reason to upgrade its military in the recent past, as the Qing Dynasty had been military dominant in East Asia since the mid-17th century. What few skirmishes they had had with Europeans, they had won decisively. But by the 19th century, wind-powered wooden Chinese junks armed with long outdated cannons were no match for the extremely recent innovations of steam-powered iron warships. The first such vessel was the HMS Nemesis, launched that very same year, it and its five sisters secretly commissioned by the East India Company, which had its own private parallel military. Yeah, see, this is where it's like, mm, was the East India Company an arm of the British government? Like, not officially, but mm, they did have warships. <laughs> yeah, they did, and they went to war together. <laughs> <laughs> Costco does not have any warships. Google, okay, that actually, we no. Know about. Google has some mystery barges. <laughs> I feel like Google may have warships, but. <laughs> Google may, in fact, have warships. I don't think they're going to attack China anytime soon, but they may, in fact, have warships. <laughs> uh... There's no Home Depot warships. <laughs> <laughs> Or if they do, it's it's made uh, in the off time uh, in the in the off time of the various nations' dads, <laughs> so it's probably not that intimidating. <laughs> it's probably like a like a Home Depot or like Canadian Tire beer league 
of just people making warships in their spare time after the kids leave the house. Just basically a just modified deck. <laughs> just a giant <laughs> floating back deck. Just a, just a deck with a sail. Um, uh, incidentally, uh, junk is a standard word for a chi- kind of Chinese ship with distinctive full battened sails. It is unrelated to the English word meaning garbage, <laughs> which also has naval origin, uh, specifically meaning a old bit of cable. Oh. This is also where we get the slang sense of penis. Oh, that's a lot of information. Yeah. I'm not quite sure what I'm going to do with any any of it, but I'm... <laughs> yeah, when a guy's talking about his junk, he means he has an old bit of rope. That's That information is just in there forever now. <laughs> thank, <laughs> thank you for that. <laughs> you are welcome. The conflict, later known as the First Opium War, uh, lasted less than three years. Uh, spoiler alert, alert, there was a second Opium War. <laughs> oh. Ah, and here I thought you were just confusing us by saying the first. Bamboozling yeah, us. Yeah, it's, it's, it's like, it's like if, if, you, if you had like a, someone who time-traveled from the past, and they're just like, oh, the Great War, and you were like, oh, you mean the First World War? Like, just the kind of, like, the look that would cross their face? <laughs> what the fuck do you mean, first? <laughs> what do you mean, first? <laughs> Uh, in 1842, the Chinese were forced to sign the deeply one-sided Treaty of Nanking, which abolished the Kohung monopoly, allowing the British to trade with whomever, fixed Chinese tariffs at a low rate, and gave the Britain access to four seaports additional to Canton, as well as compelling the Chinese to pay a fortune in silver as war reparations and compensation to both the British government and British traders for loss of income and the confiscated opium. What? Britain forcing oppressed people to sign a deeply unfair treaty that favors them economically? That's... (laughs) Have a hard time believing that? That doesn't sound like that at all. They would never. Shocking. Truly shocking. Shocking. The treaty likewise obligated the Chinese to cede the barren island of Hong Kong, which was not the global city you know it as today. <laughs> they were just like, you know that empty island? You grow things on it now. That's that's a condition of surrender. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, these stipulations were known in China as the Intolerable Treaties Ooh. and the start to the century of humiliation. Ooh. Thus was secured the unhappy trade by which Britain financed its public works at home and its wars and colonial projects abroad. From 2,553 metric tons imported in 1839, in the year 1880, uh, 6,500 tons of opium would find its way into China. Oh, God. (laughs) Just... Yeah. (laughs) It's it's not good. I mean... It's so much opium. It's so much opium. <laughs> it's an insane amount. And this is like one of the British like ills that we don't learn about in school, probably because no fourth grade teacher wants to have to explain what opium is. But this is this is pretty bad. It's probably and that that's, it's not even like the worst thing that that Britain even did to Ch- the Chinese people during this time. I'll get into it later, but. It's it's not even the worst. British industrial and military minds fretted, however, that China had one last move that could scupper the whole arrangement, namely legalizing and producing opium for themselves. 
The obvious solution was a parallel move to remove control of the source of their own addiction from Chinese hands by growing tea for themselves in the highlands of India. In order to do that, they would need to steal the secret of its cultivation. They would need the peculiar combination of a spy, a thief, and a botanist. I like that it is harder for them to steal the secret of growing tea than it is for them to steal a country in which to grow it. They're like, no, no, we had the India <laughs> right? lying around. That we, That's fine. We, we can't figure we it out. We just have a spare nation in our back pocket. That's fine. We can, we can get the India. What we can't get is the secret of how often to water this fucking plant. <laughs> we cannot figure this fucking shrub out. <laughs> Conquer nations? Absolutely. <laughs> Bushes? Not sure. <laughs> <laughs> How is this the thing that you're struggling with? How is this the difficult part of this plan? Not invade India. Like, check. Done. It's... <laughs> <laughs> Got it. It's like, figure out how to grow this particular leaf. It innovates us. <laughs> Robert Fortune was a man of modest origin, the son of a humble hedge trimmer in rural Scotland. He completed an apprenticeship and had a trade certification in horticulture, but no university degree or anything beyond church-based schooling in his local parish as a boy. He and I also share a birthday. Oh, that's fun. But not the same year. <laughs> <laughs> and <laughs> not, not, you know, any other details of your life. <laughs> no. Otherwise, completely different. I'm not even slightly Scottish. <laughs> I've never hoarded a culture in my life. <laughs> <laughs> no opium war involvement for Jessica. Very little. It just it was it was a long <laughs> time little. ago, and I don't like to talk about it. We keep it to a minimum. <laughs> uh, Rain it in, Jessica. Rain it in. Through his work at the Edinburgh Botanic Garden and the gardens of the Royal Horticulture Society in Chiswick, Fortune earned a reputation for his ability with rare and finicky hothouse ornamentals, particularly orchids, plants often sourced from climates very different from that of Scotland. When news of the peace treaty between Britain and China reached the Royal Horticultural Society, they seized on the opportunity to finally access and document the flora of the Chinese interior, and the man they selected for the job was Robert Fortune. He would be the first Briton permitted to travel to China by a foreign office following the end of the conflict. As an aside, in a case of pretty explicit classism, the society granted Fortune an annual stipend of only a hundred pounds which translates to approximately 5,000 pounds in modern terms, or $7,000 U.S. And that, to be entirely frank, is a sum of money I might reject for a part-time job pumping gas. Uh, <laughs> never mind risking eight kinds of horrible death traveling in a hostile foreign country under false pretenses. <laughs> People just, it was the Uber driving of its day. <laughs> yeah, basically, basically just gig work on the side. <laughs> you know, disrupting global foreign relations it's it's we do what we gotta do it's a living you know you just you gotta make the ends meet One moment. you're a bad cat your name is I mean, it's not the cat's fault, but, like, she earned the name! <laughs> I'm not sure that's the cat's fault, but... <laughs> when Fortune asked for a raise, he was told that essentially he should be grateful for the distinction of having been selected at all. 
While he was initially denied any kind of weaponry for self-defense, they eventually relented on the grounds that it would be terribly inconvenient if he were to die before managing to report back with his findings. That would be most inconvenient, and we cannot have it. Fortune arrived in Hong Kong in 1843 before traveling to the northernmost trading post of Shanghai. Unfortunately, this was in the midst of typhoon season, and a particularly rough storm nearly sunk the ship, as well as threw a hefty fish onto the poop deck, where it busted through the skylight and into the cabin below. <laughs> I hate it when that happens. Every time! <laughs> uh, danger was constant. While plant hunting in the hillsides, Fortune fell victim to pickpockets who chased and beat him. He likewise visited opium dens and forbidden cities far beyond where most Westerners dared travel. In order to move beyond the day's journey from the five ports permitted to British traders, Fortune did as many other Europeans and pretended to be Asian. How do you carry that one off? Shaving the front of his head and wearing a braided wig and Chinese clothes. Oh, I knew the answer would be offensive. <laughs> I don't know why I asked. Yellow face, my dear! Oh, no. Here's the thing. Here, here's the thing. When I heard he was doing this, I'm like, that's ridiculous. When I heard everybody was doing this, I couldn't, I couldn't believe it. It's beyond parody. I'm sure they didn't really fool anybody. I'm, I'm <laughs> sure people noticed. <laughs> well, they noticed something was off because, like, he, he was probably aided in his deception in no small, small part by several Chinese peasants whom he bribed for their assistance. But likewise, no doubt, the fact that the vast majority of inland Chinese people had never seen a Scotsman before. I was going to say, like, they don't notice that he's got red hair and blue eyes. That's not the giveaway that he's not fucking Chinese. <laughs> I mean, also the fact that he's at least a foot taller than everybody else. <laughs> None of this like, was ringing any alarm bells. The dude who doesn't speak Chinese. <laughs> oh, and he and he doesn't. Like he speaks a bit of pork pigeon, but that's it. It's and that's just... pigeon, as in like the the rough language, not as in the bird. No, he does not. He does not speak to pigeons. It's just Scottish brogue and blue eyes all the way through. I don't. Yeah. I can't. It, it's it's a lot. It's a lot. I I don't. I don't. I don't think that would have convinced very many people. The question is more or less so, like, can he convince them that he, he is Chinese? And more so, can he convince them that he's not British? And <laughs> that's that's the real question. Uh, but as a, as a cultural note, braided hair and a shaved tonsure at the front of the head was a traditional Manchu style that was later required as a visible marker of submission to the Qing emperor. The Qing dynasty were ethnic Manchu conquerors, while the majority of the Chinese population were ethnically Han. Still true. <laughs> yes. Still true still to Very this much true. They're, they're still Han. <laughs> um, uh, according to Fortune's writings, at one point the ruse, ruse was reversed. Uh, as Fortune lay in his cabin suffering from severe fever, the ship was set upon by a small pack of the many pirate crews that roamed the coast of the South China Sea. Fortune first drove off the uh, Fortune drove off the first ship using a few shots from his rifle. He then used the fact that the pirates likely lacked any looking glass by dressing the least Chinese looking of the Chinese crew in his own clothes and arming them with sticks reminiscent of guns while he picked at the pirates with his own. This is cartoon uh, this, logic. This is absurd. 
but this foe's strength confused and finally drove off the last two ships. I feel like everybody, all of these like ridiculous plans probably worked because none of these people wanted to get involved. They're like, you know what? No, no. I don't have time I'm just for not this today. Ask. <laughs> like, <laughs> this I'm, I'm not, not getting involved. Whatever this is, no, not today. <laughs> no, that, that was probably a lot of people. They're just like, like they looked at that and they're like, mm, I'm not gonna ask. No, we're good. <laughs> I am just not gonna ask. This seems like too much trouble for me. <laughs> And my opium addiction. Um, <laughs> I have enough problems. <laughs> I mean, like, it's, it's, I'm living in the 1800s. It's a hard enough time for everybody. <laughs> Fortune performed superbly during his first voyage, taking detailed notes and cuttings and sending back regular reports and live samples of scientifically and economically valuable plants with the, the newly developed uh, the newly developed technology of Wardian cases, an early precursor to a modern terrarium, hmm. uh, which at one point were cutting edge technology. Just so you know, this is impressive like, shit. The invention of the terrarium, <laughs> the invention of the terrarium, changed the the, the fates of empires. <laughs> Glass box for a thing. Oh. <laughs> Fortune discovered a great deal of evidence that supported the theory that black tea and green tea came from the same plant, there being little significant difference between the tea specimens grown in tea, green tea gardens and black tea gardens, and thereby correctly concluded that the difference was found primarily in the processing of the leaves, though his contemporaries were slow to accept his findings. I love the effort it took for them to figure this out. Like, this is... <laughs> same plant? You have samples. <laughs> we've already had, we've had an entire war. There's like hundreds of years of tea trade, a whole ass war. And now we have like a half shaved Scottish spy running around. And that's how we figure out it's the same plant. <laughs> Orchard had no rights to any of his discoveries, but did bring home some valuable trinkets such as pottery and jade. Upon his return, he was appointed to, as uh, to curator of the Chelsea Physical Garden, which also only paid £100, but likewise received free use of a small brick house, an allocation of coal, and the right to cultivate his own vegetable garden. This man is easily bought. <laughs> <laughs> They've been after the secret of how to grow green and black tea for like hundreds of years, and like, all right, we will give you a shed. We're going to give Bob a slap on the ass in a shed. <laughs> Like, you figured it out. Here's a hundred bucks. Like, <laughs> men have died for this information, and they're just like, yeah, whatever. Yeah. Uh, already in his mid-thirties, Fortune had required, acquired a position at the outward edge of what a man in his, of his social class could hope to achieve in his profession. Most roles of greater prestige being either a narrow number of fiercely competitive university jobs requiring higher education, or institutional positions not uncommonly passed down from father to son. Uh, <laughs> it's academia or just living in the shed. <laughs> As these were jobs largely taken by wealthy gentry, the pay was often a pittance, hardly enough to support a wife and children. Fortune also published his diaries in 1847 under the title of Three Years Wandering in the Northern Provinces of China, which is a little wordy one of Victorian Britain's <laughs> earliest looks into the internal world of a country that had remained inscrutable for generations, including two full chapters on his observations on the cultivation, harvest, and processing of tea. <laughs> Fortune's travels brought 
abroad brought him notoriety both in the, with the public and his fellow professionals. And therefore, when the East India Company needed a man with an eye for interesting plants and a knack for not getting murdered by the Chinese, they called on Robert Fortune. This man has such a specific skill set and it's worth nothing. <laughs> How is it that everybody needs this dude? It's like, he's unlocking global secrets we've been after for, like, generations everybody needs him but no one will pay him it's just like being a millennial he's paid in like marbles and lint like how we here at the india company found a button in our belly fluff and we have decided to pay you in that to go steal secrets from the chinese he's not qualified to do anything except for chinese trade espionage and he's the only person qualified to do Chinese trade espionage. How? He's also good with orchids, I guess. That is admittedly a skill set. Orchids are terrible. Keeping them, They're very pretty. <laughs> Keeping them alive is terrible. They're not meant to grow yeah, in like, a Canadian living room. No. Someone tried to give me one once in return for a speech I give, and I passed that off on someone else as soon as possible because I wasn't prepared for the guilt when I inevitably killed it. I'm not prepared to watch this die. <laughs> Yeah, it's just, it's, it, that's basically what they were giving me. They were just giving me a snuff film in flower form. <laughs> I am not emotionally prepared to watch this wither before me. Yeah, they're like, kill this plant and make it slow. <laughs> I don't think I will. But, you know, like, like it, this is this is a time and place where apparently being good at keeping an orchid alive uh, doesn't just make you impressive at PTA meetings. It also makes... You prime spy material. <laughs> this man is leading the weirdest life. The weirdest. This is the only thing he's qualified to do. He cannot get any other job. It's so specific. It's, it's so specific. After the failure of Indian Assam, the East India Company had pivoted to a new experiment, growing tea from seeds smuggled out of the Canton region in the Indian Himalayas, which had the benefit of closely resembling the best tea-growing regions of China. These areas were likewise relatively underpopulated compared to the rest of India, sparing the company some of the hassle of another mass displacement as they did their, for their previous runs. Hmm. You're going to have to get used to me just casually mentioning the war crimes of the East India Company, by the way. <laughs> it's a lot. There's a lot of war crimes. There's, There's a lot. so many. They were technically at war, but they're still pretty crime. It's still pretty bad. While Himalayan tea was higher rated by the British, the, the tea brokers back in Britain, the taste still wasn't right. They figured that what they needed was superior seeds from superior strains of tea, only to be found in the Chinese interior, and some expert eyes on the Chinese manufacturing process. Well, Fortune, when Fortune returned to China in 1948, it was at the request of Dr. John Forbes Royal, senior botanist of the East India Company, and under far more generous terms. 500 pounds per annum, Ooh. travel expenses, and property rights over any plant he found that wasn't tea. <laughs> He's moving up in the world. Yeah, 500 bucks and all the, all the plants you can shove in your knapsack. <laughs> I love it. There's like, it's a weird country. There'll be weird plants. Go ahead. Take some. <laughs> Go ahead. Fill your boots. There's nothing they will not plunder. <laughs> oh, yeah. They just, and that's the thing, like, British private enterprise in this era is mostly just England saying, telling its citizens to loot whatever they find. Like, it's, <laughs> that is what it is. 
for Mother England. <laughs> Queen Victoria said I could steal this bush. <laughs> <laughs> they are, they're just basically plundering foreign countries. And they're like, well, you know, if you find a nice plant, that's your pension. Like, yeah, no, that, that, that was essentially it. He was expected to make up for his like relatively impoverished income uh, by just auctioning Fancy found genuine. Like, <laughs> that is not a solid retirement plan. I would be mad. No, not a- <laughs> it, it. It probably would be a lot better back in the day when, like, there was this huge gardening boom in England due to most people having more recently mo- moved into urban settings. But in any other context, this is a garbage deal. <laughs> All the plants you can steal. Fortune again dressed in Asian garb and a braided wig, uh, because he cannot be convinced to cut it out. He's just going to Mickey Rooney his way through China. Oh, God. It's <laughs> uh, so bad. His height, however, remained conspicuous. Uh, at a foot taller than the typical Chinese peasant, Fortune could not hope to pass as an ethnic Han. He therefore altered his strategy and took advantage of the fact that Qing China was a multi-ethnic empire by claiming to be a different kind of foreigner, specifically a northerner from beyond the Great Wall. He's claiming to be Mongolian? Yes, essentially. He's just like, there's a big-ass wall in the way. These people have never seen a Mongolian in their fucking yeah, lives. Yeah, he, he's essentially like, I'm from Siberia, don't ask. <laughs> I'm from Kazakhstan, stop. strategy. I'm from Kazakhstan, so. <laughs> he's, he's be- just gonna bore at his way through yeah. mainland China uh, he's nice like tea <laughs> <laughs> he's like look if I act foreign enough nobody will ask any questions <laughs> well that, that's essentially the plan it's just it, he, he's boratting it he is just d- dressing just foreign enough and assuming the locals will not know enough about the area he claims to be from Like he is He's Sasha Baron Coning in this shit. <laughs> Apparently, it worked. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, Sasha Baron Conan was filming himself and nobody caught on. Yeah, that's pretty bad. <laughs> <laughs> and, like, we, we do give a lot of uh, leeway to people who seem obviously foreign. Like, we, we do. That's, that's, that is how Sasha Baron Cohen has made an entire career. <laughs> it's just... People, if they, if they think you're foreign, they just don't think too they hard about just anything humor that you do. You. Any weird ass thing you do, they'll assume it's a mistranslation and move on. <laughs> Capitalizing on xenophobia will get you far. Uh, uh, Fortune hired two Chinese servants in Shanghai. The first, Wang, was a young man from a tea-growing family in Anhui province who made a living as a middleman in the gray market of foreign goods in the port and thus spoke more than passable trader pigeon. A rudimentary combination of Chinese and English with influence from Hindi and Portuguese that traders both Oriental and Occidental used to communicate with one another in Chinese port cities. Chinglish, essentially. Pigeon languages crop up in ports all over the world. Yeah, so, like, if you've ever, like, watched, like, a really old movie, like, the kind of, the, the whole, like, uh, me no likey chop chop shit that they make Chinese people say in those things, that's traitor pigeon. Except you need to imagine not only the Chinese people talking that way, the white people had to talk like that, too. 
<laughs> it was demeaning and for everybody. <laughs> yeah, like it was not an elegant solution for anyone involved, but they had to trade something and nobody spoke anything. Like it's basically just them miming what they want <laughs> and trying to negotiate through <laughs> through fucking Pictionary. <laughs> a lot of places have developed a page in English for similar reasons. It's just a way to trade with these strange white men who've shown up. Yeah, like it 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 doesn't have because like we tend to conflate in especially in the West, uh, being articulate specifically in English, uh, as a rough uh gauge for intelligence, and that is not the case. Like this no. is just people who do not have time for your white bullshit, who are finding a way to communicate with you regardless. Yeah, they're just it's this is a very functional, very utilitarian language. Yeah, like, it's not supposed to be pretty, it's supposed to get shit done. And it did. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, so the second uh, servant tasked with was tasked with any and all physical labor, and he knew neither pidgin nor the same dialect of Chinese Fortune had managed to half acquire. He was thus known in Fortune's note simply as the coolie, uh, which was, at the time, uh, a word which was a common term for an Asian laborer, but seeing as it has some uh, connotations, I'm mostly going to call him the manservant or maybe Barry. Yeah, don't use that word in polite company today, please. <laughs> no. That's, don't. That's, it's one of those no. like racial terms that's like, it's so old, I don't know that kids today would actually be familiar with it as a racialized term. Like, kids no, of Asian descent but people, absolutely would, but uh, absolutely. white kids would like, not if necessarily... If you are from the Caribbean, if you're from East Asia, you know what this means. If you're from South Asia, you know what this means. It's, it's <laughs> but, but I, I feel like it's one of those like racist words that's so old that it's fallen out of like the average white kid's vernacular. Yeah. It's not a good word. Like Do not. This is how your it's, grandpa it's... was racist <laughs> towards Asian people in his day. Yeah, like this is, this is, like, it's within living memory for white people in the suburbs, but, like, it's old. Um, old, old, old. It kind of reminds me, I, I was playing, I was playing, um, uh, Among Us, which is a, a, a popular game among the children, and, uh, <laughs> the youths. I, I was griefing some ten-year-olds, <laughs> and, uh, as, as one does. And, like, this one guy who had the username, uh, Panda Lord, and I, I called him, uh, I, I tried to call him Tenant Raccoon. Uh, he, he kept bothering me. I, I tried to call him Tenant Raccoon. And, <laughs> no, I called him Peasant Raccoon. I tried to call him Peasant Raccoon. And the game censored the last half of Raccoon. <laughs> oh. 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 <laughs> and I'm like, oh my God. I'm like, what, what child? <laughs> In the year of our Lord, 2020, is using coon as a slur. <laughs> I feel like it's more of a thing in the United States than it is in Canada. Because in Canada, like, I definitely was in my full-on 20s before I heard that as a slur. Yeah, but like, Because I what grew nine up in an area where those are rampant and you frequently need to shoot ra like actual raccoons. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, as, as a cultural note to our American listeners, coon and spook in Canada have no racial connotations at all. Like uh, Not to us. They might to us. do a black community. No, I've, maybe. I've, I hesitate. But like, white, <laughs> if you say that to a white person in Canada, they have they think one of them means a spy and one of them means like an annoying, like, 
a, a, an annoying animal that goes through their bins. That's their understanding of that. So there's always this horrifying moment where like a white Canadian accidentally uses one of those innocently on the internet, which is disproportionately American. And then they Oy. just get torn to pieces. <laughs> Interesting how language evolves. Oh, uh, it's, a, it's a lot. So for Fortune, Wong would act as a guide, translator, and negotiator. And Barry? Barry would carry shit. It's like a weirdly racist buddy cop film. <laughs> <laughs> Wang and Barry. <laughs> um, honestly, it is a bit... I, I kind of want there to be a movie about this, but that movie would have had to have been written in the 50s. <laughs> Because it, it definitely has, like, the kind of zany, madcap comedic style of, like, early Hollywood. <laughs> Inc incidentally, if you want some extremely fucked up bedtime reading, uh, the global popularization of the term coolie actually comes from the fact that after the ban of the Atlantic slave trade within the British Empire, uh, traders made up for the labor gap by mass exporting South and East Asian laborers as indentured servants. Uh, both those who had consensually agreed, as yeah. well as those who had been uh, agreed under false pretenses, been sold by their families, or straight up fucking kidnapped. That's, that's kind of been a theme throughout history. Yeah, like the term Shanghai actually comes from the many Chinese citizens who were drugged, stolen, and shipped out of Shanghai. And just waking up aboard a ship bound overseas to work in conditions often a little bit better than slavery. Not great. No. Not, not a proud moment. No, like it's, 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 that's the problem with like a lot of the regulation of these essentially moral bans is they weren't enforced particularly well. So we can talk all we want of like, oh yes, we banned slavery when in this particular, year, but, but we still had slaves. <laughs> we just called them something else. Yeah, the the history of of Chinese immigration into North America has basically just been a constant pain. It's just mass importation of cheap labor to to work incredibly dangerous jobs, especially building the railroad, and then deciding that the Chinese are sexual predators and banning their immigration altogether. It's been sort of a flip flop on that. Yeah, and like one of the reasons why we don't learn that much about the coolie trade. Um, is one, it wasn't as important to American politics as the Atlantic slave trade was, and apparently that's that's what we care about. Um, but also because for a very long time, neither the British nor the Chinese government acknowledged that it existed. Yeah, it's kind of a not a great part of the history. We we do. I think kids today learn a bit more about laborers who were imported to North America, specifically to build um, transatlantic mm -hmm. railroads. Railways. But uh, and I think they learned a little bit about the Chinese Exclusion Act. But yeah, I think a lot of a lot of the uh, Chinese labor abuses have have gone unremarked upon. We kind of skim over injustices against Chinese. We kind of skim over them. Yeah, it's kind of a thing that like we're still not as a nation willing to acknowledge that it's just been like a long history of immigration injustices from one and from one extreme to the other, from forced immigration to a complete blanket ban on immigration. We have like a brief chapter right at the end of Chinese uh right right at the end of Canadian history and then we call it a day. Yeah, we kind of did the reverse from the Philippines at one point where we accepted Philippine nurses but not men, uh female nurses but not men. It's it's oh, been and that, a whole that thing. fucked up middle period where like we would accept Chinese men but not women. No, I think fun. we are still doing that. It's it's Are you saying we're not still doing that? <laughs> I thought we were still doing that. <sighs> 
Wong and the manservant's assistance, as well as Fortune's additional pay, would be essential to Fortune's survival because in the time he had been away, it had become significantly more dangerous to be a foreigner in China outside of the port cities. Due to the resentment of the Chinese towards the terms of the intolerable treaties, the increasing anger among peasants in response to overpopulation and droughts, and the emperor's eroded control over regional mandarins, who were high-ranking, well-educated bureaucrats and not miniature oranges. And this man has managed to save like $4 in his entire life because like nobody <laughs> has ever paid him anything. Yeah, he has to bribe everybody. <laughs> he's, just, he's just worth nothing. His whole fortune is in orchids. <laughs> Many locals' reluctance to help an outsider could be overcome, often for a price. As was typical of Port City middlemen, Wong would take frequent advantage of the fact that he handled most negotiations and purchases, in his native tongue no less, to engage in a certain level of arbitrage, by which I mean skimming money from the top. It's just crooked all the way down. <laughs> all the way. Every and This is every single interaction. Uh, Barry took offense to this, not on Fortune's behalf, but because he was Wong's senior <laughs> and expected a cut of the money. Oh. <laughs> Fortune initially appreciated the squabbling between the two because he figured it would make it much harder for the two to form any alliance against him. They would take two separate ships out of Shanghai. Uh, first northward by riverboat to the regions of uh, Zhejiang and Anhui, then overland southward to the remote uh, mountains of Fujian province. The finest green tea was typically grown to the north and black tea in the southern highlands, and Fortune would need to observe and collect samples of both. While black tea was by far the bigger prize given its popularity in the West, the river north would be the easier trip. Upon leaving Shanghai in September 1848, Fortune was careful to eat, drink, and generally comport himself in the Chinese fashion, traveling under the na a, the a name that my primary source lists as Singhua, meaning bright flower, hmm. which is a bit on the nose. They're not paying him for his creativity. <laughs> no, I don't think they're looking for a man who just has, like, a, a, a colorful understanding of how to name himself in China, like, of Chine uh, Chinese naming conventions. Uh, but my, my knowledge of dialects other than Mandarin is somewhat weak, but I believe, based on my research, that the second word, wa, meaning flower, is probably based on the Cantonese pronunciation, while the first, sing, meaning bright, is either based on Cantonese or Northern Min, a group of dialects found in Fujian. Both Fujian and Guangdong are next to each other on the southern coast, so that makes a level of sense in terms of being dialects accessible to Westerners, even if it doesn't really fit Fortune's backstory as a northerner from beyond the Great Wall. Fortune himself likely spoke some, either some Cantonese or a pidgin version of Shanghaiese, which is another dialect altogether. The word used to mean bright here has a specific connotation of bright as in gaily colorful as well as fresh, in the sense of novel and new. Uh, it can also mean seafood, but I don't think that was intended. You are an enormous nerd. <laughs> Hello, my name is Fish. <laughs> I, 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 learned, I took two semesters of Chinese, Janelle. I'm going to use it. <laughs> I've got to make it count. I've got a disturbing Duolingo score, and I've got to make it count. You do have a disturbing Duolingo score. I'm it on Duolingo a lot. Your Duolingo score is, like, unobtainably high. <laughs> it's, it's, it is just 
disturbing. There's at some point when COVID is over, you're gonna come home and there's gonna be a bunch of us gathered in your kitchen ready to read you some letters. <laughs> you're tearing this family apart, Jessica. And then you're gonna shove opium on my butt. I know it. I know it. I've known it all along. <laughs> at a certain point, it stops being like a healthy habit. And it starts being an addiction, and I have more than passed that line. You're just hoarding languages at this point. <laughs> Leave some Chinese for everyone else. <laughs> it's just going to be Jessica eventually found dead, like, buried beneath a pile of adverbs. <laughs> I, I, she passed away in the great dictionary slide of... Of of 2021. <laughs> oh, you're no, you don't have much longer left to go. <laughs> eh, I mean, I do have a lot of dictionaries, uh, probably an unnecessary amount given <laughs> given the rapid digitization of of, of the written word. Just an abs- <laughs> I had, I have a giant English to Chinese dictionary that I mostly use for flower pressing. <laughs> <laughs> this is where I squish my plants. Eh, very important. Very prestigious. It's very nerdy. Very important, indeed. Uh, Wong's habit of selective disobedience for the sake of personal gain caused immediate problems. After departing the first riverboat, Fortune ordered the party to go around Hangzhou, a large and world-renowned city directly on the Silk Road, and thus filled with traders familiar with the looks of Westerners. Wong instead instructed the porters carrying Fortune's litter, uh, as in the seat, not the garbage, uh, to travel straight ahead through Hangzhou to save on the expense, uh, the expense, expense, and pocketed the difference, bribing Barry for his silence. When they were once more safely outside the city, fortune poured into Wang in vulgar sailor's Chinese, but this failed to make any mark on Wang's behavior, perhaps due to a misunderstanding of Chinese culture on fortune's part. Specifically, he misunderstood the Chinese concept of face. So, face is often translated as honor, but the two concepts don't map onto each other perfectly for a variety of reasons. In English and Chinese, honor is a combination of status, reputation, respect, morality, integrity, and dignity. However, it is far more culturally important in Chinese than in English and strongly influenced by Confunction's thumb. Uh, In English, honor is only really implicated in extremely high-stakes interactions. You honor somebody by granting them a prestigious award. You defend your honor against appalling accusations. You act honorably by doing what is right, despite the potential for grievous consequences. Uh, Essentially, it's reserved for fairly serious matters, and you have to be a bit hoity-toity to care that much about it in the first place. Face to the Chinese is both incredibly serious and at stake in almost every interaction. You must show face to authorities, teachers, older relatives, and anyone else with seniority and status. You can give face to lower status people, which affords them a higher position in the social hierarchy. To behave immorally or embarrassingly is to lose face for you, your family, and your community. To earn face is to rise in society, and to lose face is to be a loser. Face is not merely about respect in the general sense, it is about the overarching social order, your place in that order, the respect and dignity appropriate to your station, your obligations to your betters, and their responsibilities to you. Chinese society, past and present, is heavily organized around the concept of face, where everything is serious as morality, and everything is petty as basic manners. <laughs> I'm actually very familiar with this concept from working with street youth. Um, it actually runs on a very similar system. (laughs) 
Yes. <laughs> it's it was I used to work at a school for for kids who who were sort of high risk or struggling. And oftentimes like when two youth would have a dispute, they'd like make their friends hold them back <laughs> because not because they wanted to fight, but they had to be seen as being willing to fight about it. Yes, exactly. <laughs> it's 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 you're like my friends are holding me back to show my willingness to engage in violence over this matter of honor. Yeah, it was like, none of us want to fight. None of, none of them wanted to fight. But they wanted, they had to be seen. But you don't actually really want to fight them. <laughs> it's, it, it's a show. You have to be seen being willing to take this matter that far. So if a staff was around, they'd like try to like start a fight, kind of like making it convenient for us to pull them apart. They'd, they'd, there'd be a lot mm. of posturing and a lot of like, if the staff weren't here right now, and it's like, okay, look, like, <laughs> I could leave right now and go get a mm -hmm. coffee, and you two would still not fight. <laughs> but it's a yeah. very similar... Like, that, that, would, that, would, that would just make it weird. It, it's about... You can't not. It's not optional. That's, that's the pecking order. That's how things go. Because if you do that, you're showing you are willing to... You're, you will allow yourself to be disrespected. People will mess with you. And you will... People will mess with you. People will take your shit. People will fuck with your shit. If you do not show that you are willing to defend it. It's... Yeah, it's... There's... Most non-Western cultures have a similar concept. Or a lot of non-Western cultures have a similar concept. It shows up in gift giving. There's often very elaborate rituals around gift giving that Westerners don't understand. Mm-hmm. Which causes us to uh, f make an ass of ourselves or to offend somebody. Constantly. All kinds of stuff. There's lots of stuff we just don't understand as Westerners. And as much as Britain, British culture has its own rigid hierarchy, it, it, it is one built far more so on respectability than honor. Like, Fortune was a lower-class man who had risen socially on merit, despite lacking the two most important things in his own society, wealth and hereditary class. As he became more prominent, he had eventually shifted his own date of birth to disguise the fact that he had nearly been born out of wedlock for the sake of propriety like far more scandalous back then uh but his relative high status within china was essentially a pretense allowed by his status as a complete outsider without any obvious marker of social class but he likewise lacked the nuance of one of the most important aspects of chinese social hierarchy and made the mistake of treating his servant as an underperforming employee and thus a quasi-equal like the thing the thing about publicly reaming out a servant is that you are simultaneously humiliating them and treating them as if they are far higher status than they are. If they are important enough for you as their master to personally scream at with people watching, they're pretty important. So as... <laughs> so, you must ream out your servants in the privacy of your home. Or get someone else to do it for you, just to really oh, emphasize that you do you not can... care about them. You can outsource the reaming. You have to outsource the reaming. It's undignified. So as, <laughs> as much as Fortune was trying to tear Wong down, he was in fact building him up relative to his own peers as a man with obligations to a much more important man, even if he had failed in those obligations. Uh, it also lowered Fortune himself, both by acting as Wong's near equal and by the inherent indignity of such an outburst. The level of social analysis... Uh, <laughs> 
Like, whether or not Fortune knew it, he had essentially assigned Wong to create and build his status and face within Chinese society, both by presenting him as a Mandarin through his own cultural knowledge and by giving gifts, what we would consider bribes, to the people who helped them. And that face was rapidly leaking over to Wong due to Fortune's dependence on him. Like, it, it, admittedly, like, I had to look up a Wikipedia page and, like, ask ask cultural advisors. I'm just like, all right, so did I get it right? And they're like, <laughs> Like, please just explain this to me. This is hard. It's ultimately just a, it's a very difficult yeah. concept. <laughs> it's just, it's almost, but not quite like a European concept, which makes it harder to understand because my brain wants to keep defaulting to my understanding of a very similar concept. Well, European culture, if you have servants to scream at, yeah, you're doing I mean, pretty good. If, if anything, <laughs> screaming at your servants is a form of conspicuous consumption. If if Instagram stars had servants in this day and age, they'd do that shit all the time. Well, that was sort of the thing. Like in 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 European culture, it's always sort of been, uh, or Western culture, American culture. You can pay a man to scream at him. Gosh, that's whitey twenty. Having having the help around and having to manage the, it's been it's sort of a status symbol. If you are a lady who has to spend her time managing the help, that in itself is sort of the status symbol. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Whether you berate them in public is your deal. Like you have a big enough household that you need to manage them. <laughs> if you can scream at people in public and they still work for you, assuming you don't live in an age where they're actually indentured or owned by you, if you can scream at people who work for you and they keep working for you, you have arrived. <laughs> yes, like you're here. <laughs> when you can be shitty to people in public, that <laughs> you're unstoppable. Oof, and no one says anything. Yeah, oh, man, you're 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 basically you're basically upper class. <laughs> uh, they took another boat after the Hangzhou debacle, where Fortune's birth was next to a dwarf, and his sleeping mat was on top of two large oblong containers. Due to the common practice of sending people back to their ancestral home after death, these were likely coffins. But Fortune didn't know that, so he slept just fine. Oh, just a dumbass white dude sleeping in a coffin. Well, I mean, on the coffins. Is that better? Uh, no. <laughs> it just makes it weirder. On the boat ride, Wong got into a heated spat with the captain. After the captain attempted to spend a silver dollar Wong had given him, only to be told it was fake. It was likely genuine, just Mexican, and unfamiliar to a random Chinese innkeeper. Only after the boatman threatened to tell Fortune that his servant was peddling fraudulent money did Wong agree to refund him in Chinese copper currency, though even then he shorted him the full amount. (laughs) While Fortune didn't understand the exact detail of the disagreement, he certainly noticed it, and it further nurtured a suspicion that Wong was a liability. (laughs) This is just like a Stooges movie at this point. like 100%. I don't know which one is Curly. (laughs) I don't know which one is Moe. But it is a Three Stooges movie at this point. They're just running around China, sleeping on coffins and slapping each other. Like, this is... (laughs) It's absurd. Uh, That being said, uh, in terms of Wong being a liability, he was hardly the only one. On both boat journeys, Barry had let slip details that clued others on the trip of Fortune's true providence, exposing all three to significant danger. On the first, this was likely out of incompetence, and Wong smoothed things out with the boatman with a pointed bribe. 
On the second, resentment probably played some part, and they were lucky to escape without incident. Fortunate and Wong traveled ahead, and Barry followed sometime after with the luggage and also the dwarf. Oh, just bring the dwarf when you get the chance. <laughs> you know, make, sure, make sure to bring bring the luggage and also the dwarf. Uh, it kind of reminds me of uh, was it was it Tycho Brahe? Who is the guy who just had a dwarf? I think it is Tycho Brahe. Why is that? Yeah, he just paid a he just paid a dwarf to sit underneath his kitchen table doing nothing during dinner. <laughs> Why does that knowledge live in my brain? <laughs> I don't know. I don't think you ever forget about Tycho Brahe's dwarf the moment you learn about Tycho Brahe's dwarf. Oh my god, it's totally Tycho Brahe. He had a dwarf <laughs> named Jep, whom he believed to be clairvoyant, who was hired to eat under the table during meals. Why is that? I don't know what I had for lunch today. <laughs> Why is that front and center in there? <laughs> it's important knowledge that'll keep you going later in life. It's vital. It's what you learn Clearly. in school. You know, math, language, Tycho Brahe's dwarf. Tycho Brahe's <laughs> table dwarf. <laughs> uh, the ruse to gain access to the jealously guarded tea gardens and processing factories was simultaneously genius and deeply stupid. Uh, with Fortune five steps behind, dressed in Chinese finery, Wong would announce him as a Mandarin from a far-off province desiring to inspect the production of the glorious tea, beseeching the master of the factory to be so good as to permit them entrance to the facility. They're just like, we're here as tea tourists, let us in. Yeah, and they did. Uh... It is through these factory visits that Fortune confirmed his theory that the difference between green and black tea was a matter of processing rather than plant. After being plucked, green tea is baked in the sun for an hour or two, then pan-fried, which keeps the leaf from oxidizing. They are then pressed with rollers and finally fried again. Black tea leaves are processed similarly, except they are left in the sun far longer and permitted to wilt, before they are likewise pressed with rollers that allow to oxidize for several hours, before finally being, uh, being fried, halting this oxidation process. This is generally referred to as fermentation, though no actual enzyme breakdown versus via microorganisms take place. More accurately, this is the process of curing the leaves. Green and black tea, workers then pick through the processed leaves, removing any bugs, dirt, stem, or other impurities. It took them so long to figure out that it's the same plant, but one, you just gotta, like, sun-dry it and then give it a quick spin in the frying pan. Like, it took yeah. so long to figure this out. Yeah, like, one of them, essentially, you just leave out on the counter. <laughs> 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 and then... Then you just do the same thing with it. A hundred percent. Yeah. No. <laughs> one of them is a fresh leaf and the other one is a slightly whiffy leaf. <laughs> People died for this information. <laughs> they did. Like lots of them. <laughs> and this was like, this is a huge trade. Like thousands of people knew this. This was not. No. Like, this is known all throughout the Chinese countryside. This... this was not the KFC herbs and spices blend. Like this was. Common knowledge. Also, that's just parsley. It's just parsley. Salt, pepper, parsley, a couple other things. It's not that complicated. A couple other things. 
<laughs> Jessica's like, I've solved it. It's parsley and other stuff. You don't fool me. Yeah, it's just a bunch of shit. One of the spices is pepper. <laughs> it had to be. It has to be. You can see it on the chicken. In, in addition to processing, much of tea quality comes not from the plants themselves, but rather the gathering of specific leaves. The highest quality tea comes from the fresh, tender leaves at the very end of branches, while lower quality tea would include a higher proportion of tougher, bitterer leaves from further down, and the poorest of all would contain stems or consist entirely of tea dust. Uh, basically what we currently drink in most tea bags. It runs on marijuana rules. If it's mostly stems, it's no good. <laughs> uh, here, because in the last eight and a half pages of notes, I have not acknowledged the existence of a single woman other than a passing reference to the Queen Victoria, uh, I will note that the majority of tea pickers were female, who often worked with a baby strapped to their oh. chests and a massive basket of leaves strapped to their backs. Hardy agricultural work may seem like a strange thing to associate with women in a conservative and a highly traditional society, but tea harvesting is more about detailed work than blunt labor. Tea pickers were heavily romanticized and frequent subjects of Chinese poetry. Basically, they were just like, the Confucius were just pretty sure that tea picking was real sexy. Look at that, Bechdel test smashed. <laughs> We've mentioned a woman. I, I, I'll, I'll give you another. Fortune likewise had a wife, oh. uh, Jane, who handled his affairs while he was abroad. He wrote very literal of their life together, likely for reasons of privacy. And I will now continue for the next eight pages of notes without acknowledging any other woman expect, except perhaps a passing reference to the author of my primary source material. <laughs> but he's just like out adventuring for most of the time, like, yeah. sending home pennies, and she's just, like, chilling back in England. Oh, yeah, with, like, kids and shit. Like, he's just sending her back, like, chunks of porcelain and jade. <laughs> she's just, make this work! <laughs> Buy some bread, woman! <laughs> he just doesn't really get any other salary. It's just, like, whatever trinkets you can swindle people out of in mainland China, that's what you get. That's your pension. Yeah, that's that's what you get to raise a family on. <laughs> Just stolen pottery from the Chinese. <laughs> While at the first factory he visited, processing green tea near the Yangtze River, Fortune noticed something odd about the hands of the workers processing the tea. Namely, that they were covered in some kind of blue substance. He likewise found a worker cooking and turning a bright yellow powder into a foul, sulfur-smelling paste. Fortune took samples of both to send back to Britain, where they would one day form a key part of the public case against Chinese manufactured tea, which further turned British tea drinkers against green tea and towards black. Western tea merchants had little trust of Chinese traders, suspecting them of everything from bulking their products with sawdust to redrying used tea and selling them on to gullible whites. Likewise, they suspected the Chinese of dyeing their tea in order to increase its value to Western markets. The blue powder was, in fact, a pigment known as Prussian blue, a form of oxidized iron ferrocyanide, which sounds awful. I was like, hang on, that's... I feel like that was that was a big thing at one point, that you were not supposed to be ingesting yeah, that. Yeah, it, it sounds awful because it has the word cyanide in it. Uh, but luckily, the mechanism by which cyanide poisons the body is through binding to iron in the cells and disrupting their functioning. While it's already bound to iron, however, cyanide can pass through the body relatively harmlessly. Uh, the yellow shit, on the other hand, that shit was gypsum, uh, which is an ingredient in plaster that breaks down into hydrogen sulfide, <laughs> which in large enough amounts is pretty fucking poisonous. <laughs> 
But yeah, no, the, the, the fame of Prussian blue as poisonous is actually part of the public case against Chinese manufactured tea. Because they were they were painting the tea leaves green. I just love the amount of effort that they went to rather than just like having a single dude learn to speak Chinese. They just ran around <laughs> stealing stuff, bottling samples of stuff, trying to sneak into Chinese tea factories as tourists. They could have just like learned Chinese and asked any random person how to do this. That's the thing is like they could have walked. Because, like, there are tons of workers. This is a very labor-intensive industry. They could have just walked into a tea field with a reasonably fluent Chinese speaker and just asked what they were doing. And they were like, no, that's too easy. We need a half-shaved Scottish man to just kind of sneak up on him. Like, <laughs> We need a... We need a we need a, what is what is it a Rosenbergian what is it when you have that those complicated oh my god ones? a uh, Rube Goldberg we have need we need a Rube Goldbergian scheme by which a sh- half shaved Scottish man wanders into China asking suspicious questions in tea factories <laughs> requiring a massive amount of tra- uh, translation from what is essentially a con artist. <laughs> Like, they were just, like, they were so, they were more willing to believe that Chinese people were trying to poison them than they were to just be like, hey, what is that stuff and what is it for? <laughs> yeah, and like, and like, and like, he probably could have just asked the people making it, because, like, because neither of pigment was necessarily being added to the tea maliciously. Rather, Westerners consistently bought brighter green teas for higher prices, especially dyed teas that had a more consistent, more attractive look. Chinese traders and manufacturers had therefore concluded that white people just like that sort of thing. <laughs> like, iron ferrocyanide and gypsum were cheap dyes first and poisons purely incidentally. It's their own fault for wanting the greenest of teas. <laughs> Ooh, it's just so pretty and uniform. Maybe you shouldn't want it to look like... If you don't want paint in your tea, stop buying shit that looks like it's been painted. Maybe. Maybe. <laughs> <laughs> no, we've never learned. This is why all of our red delicious apples and strawberries taste like sawdust. Uh, red deliciouses are disgusting. <laughs> They're just so gross. <laughs> it's because we want them really red. And we're we like, should they taste good? So red. No, just make them redder. I just want them, I want the prettiest, least tasty fruit imaginable. I want a red delicious. I want it to look tastier than it ever could possibly be. Like, a picture of a Red Delicious is tastier than an actual Red Delicious. <laughs> you could eat a painting of a Red Delicious and it would be better for you. It wouldn't, yeah, you wouldn't notice a significant difference, I don't think. Uh, tea seeds in November, Orchard's party took up the hospitality of Wong's par- peasant farmer father in a rickety cottage o- on the side of a cliff containing four branches of the family altogether. Wong, in fact, was typical of the region a young man forced south because his homeland was too poor and infertile to support all who lived there. This was a deep shame to these families, both for being unable to provide for all their children, but also to have them work as merchants, considered troublesome by confunction thought, and far less honorable than a poor but literate peasant. 
The irony of mountainous tea-growing regions was that they were poorly suited for any other kind of crop, but highly lucrative. But a highly lucrative bush, essentially devoid of any nutritional value. We have no choice but to grow lucrative cash crops that we can't eat. That's essentially, yeah. I mean, in fairness, that's that's a, much of the world grows cash crops that can't really be eaten. No. At least not in unprocessed form. Large parts of the world grow coffee, chocolate. Those are oh, man. those are purely cash crops. Opium itself is a cash crop. Yes, absolutely. I was, I was just thinking like, oh man, like the opium trade collapses and you're forced to eat the crop and then you're just high as balls <laughs> in opium latex. <laughs> you won't think about your financial situation, but you might yeah. die. <laughs> yeah, you're not gonna you're not gonna be particularly hearty after a meal and a meal of opium. <laughs> No, you're going to be real listless after that one. You're going to be floppy. Yeah, tobacco is not, like, it's valuable, but it's not, like, nutritionally valuable at all. Like, it is- Also a cash crop. It is not a calorically (laughs) dense food. Hemp is a common cash crop. Lots Lots of the world grows cash crops they can't eat. It's just you're very dependent on the crop doing well and having a market Mm -hmm. that's somewhat stable. Uh. The evening after their arrival at Wong's family home, Barry and the dwarf joined them with the bags. And I don't know the dwarf's name either, so I guess I'll just call him Tim. They just didn't record it. They're just like the dwarf. He was there. I mean, I mean, I, I don't think they needed to specify which dwarf in their defense. <laughs> <laughs> he has a name. Did he have a purpose? Or they were just like, neat, a dwarf. I shall take him. Like, I, I think he just hung out with Barry. He maybe he p- picked up some of the bags. I don't know. He's just kind of there. They're just He's like yeah, just this is there. Traveling espionage tour. What of it? <laughs> yeah, like they're not supposed to attract attention to themselves. They've got. <laughs> they just the first boat they go on. They just pick up this dwarf. <laughs> They've got a dwarf. They've got a Scottish dude who's a head taller than everybody. Like yeah, that's the definition of subtle. They've got a huge Chinese dude that barely speaks any languages. Uh, and then they've got Wong, who's like the most normal of the bunch, and he's stealing everyone's money. <laughs> this is this is this is quite the band of rogues, <laughs> of a true motley crew. Speaking of which, uh, they they didn't have any instruments, but Barry had had some kind of trouble with the boatman that Wong had upset, and explained his struggles in pantomime. Uh, Fortune doesn't provide a ton of detail, saying as Wong declined to translate. Uh, but Barry eventually concluded that Wong had behaved in a cowardly manner and insisted that he compensate him for the problems he had incurred on Wong's behalf to the tune of $4, which Wong, surrounded by his large family, dismissed. Like, that's, here's the thing, like, $4 is actually quite a bit of money, but every time I read about a historical fight over, like, two bucks, I have to giggle at least a little. <laughs> I just like that they're like standing around like just artistically recreating their crimes. It's just like haha and then Wong stole money from that dude. Apparently he had to like hide in a in a, like a temple uh to get away from these upset boatmen. Um <laughs> but like, <laughs> uh but I I just I just love hearing stories. They're like, "Oh yes, they came to fisticuffs and one of them blew the other away with a hidden pistol over the sum the the, the important sum $2." <laughs> People dying over amounts of money that we use for laundry. (laughs) It's like inflation has done a lot and it has made almost all of these arguments extremely silly sounding. (laughs) (laughs) Just dudes dying over the price of an ice cap. (laughs) 
Tasha, what would you do for a Klondike bar? I'd kill a man. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Barry then intimated that he would get his own countrymen involved, which Wong likewise blew off. Uh, The matter was only settled when Fortune stepped in. He took Barry aside and communicated to him that he needed to let it go or Fortune would withhold his pay. Fortune then gave him a small loan, quote-unquote, without really expecting it repaid, which seemed to end things. These dudes have just been alone with other dudes too long. This is... I will pay you to let it go. Because here's the thing. Like, it kind of shows you why you need women in some social circumstances, just to tell everyone to piss off with the testosterone already. (laughs) (laughs) Just, can you calm down? I don't care about your metaphorical balls. Stop it. <laughs> it's just it's just like a bunch of dudes sick of each other's shit, telling each other to fuck off. That's Yeah. Like really they've just been on the boat for too long. That's that's what this is. And you know We've what? done a lot of stories about people on boats too long. It it always ends like this. Always. You just you get pissed off eventually. You... Everyone reading everyone reading this, we're not reading this. Everyone listening to this has been quarantined for a year. They get it. They get it. I mean like I, I'm almost at the point where I would punch a man and threaten him with my family for four dollars. Like it's <laughs> just for an excuse to get it out of my system, honestly. I'll do it for three. <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, will I get my mom to kick your ass for the sum of a dollar fifty? Maybe. I'm getting there. <laughs> <laughs> we're we're so close. While Wong was disinterested in Fortune's request to track down this or that curious pint specimen of Fortune's behalf, his cousins were far more obliging, more than willing to retrieve what to them was a commonplace shrub that Fortune appeared to be willing to pay absolutely stupid money for. It's like a dude shows up, like, flashing stacks of cash and asking for a dandelion. He'd be like, (laughs) I I mean, I guess. Sure, I mean, whatever. (laughs) (laughs) Like, they're just like, they're like, "Have have you seen this? And they show you a picture and you're just like, yeah, that's man. That's yeah, that's, that's kind of everywhere. Like <laughs> yeah, that's, that's a dandelion right there. <laughs> if you want it, okay. And like they can be like, oh, I hear it has like great medicinal and culinary purposes. And I'm like, yeah, you can make them into a salad or whatever. <laughs> <laughs> like I guess <laughs> if you want. Uh, beyond Barry's continued attempts to extort Wong for his perceived wrongs, Wong's father likewise argued for his own share of Fortune's money in return for his hospitality, and Wong himself arranged the party's trip back to Shanghai, overcharging Fortune to the tune of 2,000%. <laughs> None of these dudes like each other. They're just bilking each other out of money. Or I guess just Wong is bilking everyone else out of money. Oh, no, because it's just a constant circle. They call it the squeeze, apparently. Among European traders, they called it the squeeze, and apparently it was just like a constant thing of doing business in China. Um, but like, I just, I, I just like two thousand percent. Like you didn't notice something was off that it was off by two thousand percent. Like someone is not looking at the books here. <laughs> Someone's rubber stamping expenses they should not be. Oh my gosh. Uh, Because, like, it's weird, because, like, Fortune's stealing from them, technically, but they're stealing from him. It's just, like, this weird, comical circle of theft. (laughs) It's kind of like the hot potato of theft. Like, you just don't want to be holding the bag when the trip ends. Like, everybody is stealing from everybody else. Oh, absolutely. Uh, As an aside, although Fortune's activity in China would deeply damage the position of the Chinese tea exports in the global markets, uh, his writings likewise popularized green tea from the Sunglow region, which was a turning point in the relative prosperity of the area. 
after visiting three more districts for seeds, Fortune returned to Shanghai in January 1849, shortly before the Lunar New Year. He was There he was hosted by Thomas Dent, a British trader of the prestigious Dent Beal & Co., who gave Fortune access to the gardens of the grounds of his factory, where Fortune would replant his various cuttings and clones and prepare around 10,000 seeds and 13,000 saplings for transport to the Himalayas. All of his samples he carefully cataloged and labeled. Well, one must be thorough. One must be thorough. Like, like they are not paying him enough for this. I have to be perfectly no. frank. They are not paying him enough. Like, 500, 500 pounds is way more than our brains think it is, but it's not that much more. <laughs> like, it's, it's like, it's like 5,000 times 5, which would be 25,000 pounds. That is, it's, it's just stupid. He's making like 50k a year to like solve global trade. Yeah. To steal an entire industry from China. Like he's getting paid worse than entry level positions in the government. <laughs> like, <laughs> like modern governments. It's more lucrative to be an accountant than it is to like steal one of the most valuable products on earth at the time. Yeah, like he's not getting well compensated for this, at least not in his above board pay. That's the thing, is like they're basically saying like we're not going to pay you enough. Just make it work by stealing shit. Compensate yourself. Take what you want. Com We're not going to stop yourself. You. Just stick your hand in whatever jade or pottery or take a penny, leave a penny you find in China. <laughs> While Fortune was confident in his wardian cases, ability to protect his wardian cases, ability to protect the fragile saplings and their weak roots based on previous experience, the transporting of the seeds would provide its own unique set of challenges. Tea seeds are extremely sensitive to humidity and thus travel poorly, prone as they are to either spoiling or drying out. Further, these samples wouldn't reach India in time for the coming spring growing season and would thus need to survive over a year until the next one. Fortune thus separated the seeds into three groups with an equal proportion of samples from each of the four regions he had visited. The first he would ship using the standard method, which was four separate paper bags and a coarse cloth sack. Uh, the second he would send in a mixed box of dirt. And the third he would leave in Shanghai to germinate so they might be transported as seedlings. He even approached an elderly Chinese seed dealer named Aqing, told him he packed the seeds in rice ash to discourage maggots. Well, now according like their iPhones, yeah. just pack it in rice. Although to be completely clear, according to Fortune, technically he said that he packed them in burnt lice. And no, I am not joking. Oh, <laughs> oh, well, that's less pleasant. I don't like that. Fortune would accompany the shipment as far as Hong Kong, but after that, it was out of his hands, and it would be months until he heard any news, whether success or failure. They were to sail to Calcutta, known nowadays as Kolkata where they would be under the care of Hugh Falconer, another Scottish gardener employed by the company and directed director of the Calcutta Botanical Garden. I was like, this whole company is just underpaid Scottish dudes running around the fucking Eastern Hemisphere. Well, that's, that's the thing, is if, if you're Scottish, you're basically a second-class citizen at this time. And if you are a working-class Scotsman, like, this is one of the only ways you can rise in society. <laughs> steal things from the Chinese. Absolutely. And then you shall finally be deemed worthy of talking to the English. <laughs> <laughs> Congratulations. You're a real white man now. <laughs> Oof. 
Due to an unexpected delay, where, for reasons unclear, the first ship stopped in Ceylon, what is modern-day Sri Lanka, the shipment only arrived in Calcutta on the 23rd of March, a full two months after it had departed Hong Kong. Nonetheless, the plants seemed to be thriving just fine when Falconer expected them through the glass terrariums, which he was careful not to open. As an aside, while reading my primary source, All the Tea in China by Sarah Rose, I ran into a sentence in the chapter on the Calcutta Botanical Garden where she describes Falconer walking past the peaceful ornamental lakes towards the corpse-strewn banks of the Huli River. And I dearly hope that is a typo. <laughs> I hope that was supposed to be cope-strewn and not corpse-strewn because that is way too casual. <laughs> <laughs> Just casual corpses. Strewn about, cluttering up the place. A lovely walk down by the corpse-strewn banks of the river. <laughs> Do watch your step. <laughs> I mean, this is admittedly colonial India. It could, they, there could, it could be corpse-strewn. <laughs> it really could go either way. <laughs> A few days after their arrival, Falconer sent the terrariums upriver on the steamer, on a steamer on the next leg to their final destination in mountainous. Saharanpur to the far northwest, where the young saplings would be planted under the supervision of yet another Scottish gardener, William Jameson. <laughs> They're just everywhere. They're just a dime a dozen. They like just purchase them in barrels, I think. Yeah, they just they just scattered we're scattering Scottish gardeners across the globe. <laughs> <laughs> Fetch me more Scottish gardeners. Throw another on the pile. Okay, just go ahead, they're cheap. <laughs> Uh, en route, route, however, they had another stop in Allahabad, where they needed to be transferred to another vessel, a step that unfortunately took some time due to drought. It would take several weeks before the monsoon season would raise the level of the Ganges River to an acceptable level for travel. On April 12th, after the saplings arrived, on April 12th, after the saplings arrived in Allahabad, a high-level local official, wishing to inspect the condition of the plants, broke the seal on the terrariums. All of the terrariums. He reported to his superiors that the seedlings were doing well. That would certainly not be the case once they arrived in Saharanpur. Around 12,000 of the plants perished in the final leg of the journey, and the survivors were struggling and moldering. Jameson did his best to salvage the shipment, but in the end, only 3% of the original plants managed to survive to be replanted in India. Eventually, this would drop to a total of around 80 healthy plants essentially a rounding error out of all those who had been sent. <laughs> Likewise, not a single seed managed to germinate upon arrival. <laughs> Oof. Uh, that being said, when I say Jameson did his best, I'm not actually saying that much, as he was an enthusiastic but not particularly competent botanist, given that he had actually studied geology and zoology. He was guilty of responding to all official correspondence with whatever the written form of verbal diarrhea is, while simultaneously communicating precious little of value. Uh, he tended to hold on to outdated science, well beyond the point where it, his views had been definitively proven wrong, ignoring both experts working in the field, such as Fortune, and even Chinese gardeners he employed, who told him that black and green teas were essentially the same plant. Despite having relatively plentiful access to tea plants of his own, he performed no further experiments, preferring the received wisdom of flawed and outdated studies from laboratories back in London. 
His appointment to replace Falconer after Falconer's promotion to the dictatorship in Calcutta was in no small part due to his skill at political maneuvering and a well-connected uncle who was both a respected geologist and the teacher of Charles Darwin. Oh, I just like that these people just like either lie or luck their way into these positions and then ended up just like bringing a whole bunch of compost to India. They just showed up with a bunch of rotting dead plant matter and were like, well, it's tea. <laughs> yeah, because that's the thing is the terrariums should have kept plants basically self-sustaining. Like a sealed terrarium, a plant in a sealed terrarium can live for years uh, without any further human input. <laughs> but the moment you crack that seal, <laughs> uh, it is no longer a closed environment. It's no longer a closed system. <laughs> Water escapes, goddammit. <laughs> Water escapes and or gets in. And Tea plants are super sensitive to water. Uh, the company Tea Experiments had taken place in the Himalayas for good reason. Tea roots easily rot when waterclogged, and thus require the easy drainage of sloped terrain, as well as sick, the thick mist and heavy shade of mountains to give them the balanced moisture they need. Jameson, somehow missing the whole reason why his garden in the remote mountains had been selected in the first place, uh, instead spent years planting tea in flood-irrigated flatlands. <laughs> flood irrigation being traditionally used on fucking rice. <laughs> they're like, well, they're both from China. Surely they grow the same. Right. <laughs> Do have fucking tea patties. This plant grows well on the rocky side of a mountain with no rain. I bet it'll grow great in a fucking cranberry bog. <laughs> <laughs> And, like, these, these tea plants did not look okay. They looked sick. I'm sure they did. When plants get root rot, they become very sickly very fast. Yeah, like, these, these plants did not look well. In one dispatch, Jameson uh, commended the fact that the plants had been watered regularly all the way from Malalabad, <laughs> uh, citing that as the reason that so many had survived. 80 out of thousands? Yeah. <laughs> uh, in, in another, he suggested that the next time a careful Indian gardener should be sent along with the cases supplied with a screwdriver so that he could open them regularly in order to tend to the plants. Oh my god. <laughs> <laughs> They're so fucking bad at this. So Leave them in the box. Oh my fucking god. Don't touch them. Just don't touch them. You were told not to touch them. It's like I keep giving my coworker succulents for her office and she keeps watering them to death. Oh. <laughs> I just she just doesn't believe you. I'm like, this is a plant you cannot yeah. water. You will kill it if you try to love it. Just ignore it. Once a month, maybe. Just leave it alone. Treat it like a paperweight. Yeah. Like, like this is a plant in name only. Leave it alone. <laughs> leave it. She's killed several. It's basically a pet rock with more believability. <laughs> <laughs> Just don't water the fucking thing or it'll rot. Oh, boy. Um, uh, despite the fact that to a scientifically literate expert in the field, it was clearly the unnamed senior official at Halalaba that was primarily to blame, uh, Jameson instead chose Falconer as a scapegoat, citing the carelessness of the botanist in Calcutta, to which Falconer simply responded by forwarding Jameson an article on Wardian cases. He likewise forwarded the same article to Jameson's immediate superiors, the Revenue Department in Calcutta, and to Dr. Royal in London. 
the equivalent of CCing your boss on an email. Absolutely. Just absolutely. <laughs> just I not only are you stupid, I want you and your superior and your superior 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 to know it. <laughs> I'm like, I am I'm just just looping in Karen at the office into this because you, Jane, are going down. <laughs> God, except you're sending a like snail mail letter uh, in the 19th century. <laughs> you're just like, man. It's so much slower and so much pettier. When this letter arrives in four and a half months. Oh, uh, he's going to get it. You're going to feel real dumb. You're going to look real stupid whenever this gets to you. <laughs> I can't wait until July when you look like an absolute asshole. <laughs> this will sustain me in the coming months. Uh, I will be kept warm by by spite alone. Except that you don't actually need to be kept warm when you're living in fucking Calcutta. Oh my gosh. Yeah, you're... Back in China, as yet unaware of this stupendous bureaucratic clusterfuck, a Fortune made his way on a hired junk from the coastal city of Ningbo to the black tea-growing region of Fujian, then known as the Bohea Hills and now as the Wuyi Mountains. He departed in May 1849 and would arrive in June. For all of that, the green tea growing opportunities of the company were paltry, uh, operations of the company were paltry, their black tea gardens were non-existent and Fortune would need to acquire black tea seed stock in order to fulfill his contract. Fortune considered sending Wong and Barry to Wu Yi instead, but didn't trust them not to simply dick around, fudge their plant hunting, and come back with inferior seeds if left unsupervised. He had likewise reached the end of his rope with their constant scheming and bickering. He still found Wong useful, however, in that he sent instead sent him back for another round of seed collection in Anhui. <laughs> They're like, I hate you. I'm tired of your bullshit, but I do need you to keep gathering crates of seeds that will rot on the way to India. I will still pay you for useless <laughs> compost to send to India. I will still do that, but I don't want to hang out with you anymore. Like, this is basically, like, the opening of the Wardian cases is a bit like if we had just invented the deep freeze and we had been sending ice cream to the Himalayas. <laughs> <laughs> Just opening it up to fucking rotten to soup. Ooh. <laughs> Unrefrigerated. Mm. The best kind. Ooh, is that Neapolitan? I can tell by how brown it is. <laughs> Fortune instead took on another servant to accompany him to Fujian, a proud, dignified, and portly man named Sing Hu, who was the former body servant of a high-ranking Mandarin at the imperial court. He had originated from Fujian and spoke the local dialect. He likewise bore a small flag bearing the mark of the imperial court, a gift from a former master that signaled that he was under the protection of the emperor, though Fortune was somewhat dubious of its power in the face of the peasant rebellions rumored in the area. The trip was nonetheless far smoother, both due to Fortune's increased fluency in Chinese culture and the fact that Sing Hu was a far bolder and more sophisticated bullshit artist than Wong ever was. <laughs> if you're gonna bullshit me, be good at it, at least. Right. <laughs> Uh, at least commit. Uh, at one point, early on in the voyage, their boat ran into a traffic jam, and when a rude boatman attempted to pass them, the captain of their own vessel refused to let him through. When he insisted, Sing Hu informed him that an important Mandarin was aboard, and he should show some respect. When the boatman declared that he didn't care, Sing Hu unfurled his flag, and the man immediately quavered and folded. 
<laughs> oh yeah, eat flag. <laughs> eat flag, bitch. <laughs> Just throwing it down like it's a royal flush. <laughs> that being said, despite the fact that Fortune wished to travel relatively light to make more room for plants, Sing Hu did have a habit of buying random shit whenever there was a bargain to be had. This is basically a wacky road trip. Like, <laughs> They're just coming home with knickknacks and useless dead seeds. He's like, well, I can't give up a deal. I know that you're on an important espionage mission, but look at this fabric. This is a steal. (laughs) They're just antiquing as they commit what amounts to corporate espionage. In Wuyi, Fortune stayed at a Buddhist temple, where he was warmly welcomed. There he took numerous clones and cuttings, purchased young saplings from the monks, and paid street urchins to collect seeds. He likewise took detailed notes on the monks' tea processing. Upon his departure, Fortune's host there even gifted him several rare and valuable plants and flowers. He could not stay longer, however, especially as Sing Hu's increasingly fanciful embellishments of his master's great status would begin to draw too much attention. At one point, an extremely elderly monk who was experiencing some degree of senility came to Fortune and began to kowtow. That is to say, bowing starting from a standing position all the way to a kneeling position where the forehead touches the floor, a process usually repeated nine times to indicate submission to the emperor. Fortune stopped him, feeling for the first time in two years lying and robbing the Chinese people of untold natural riches, something very much like guilt. <laughs> this feels wrong. Yeah, like, there's nothing quite like either a child or someone deep in the depths of Alzheimer's and dementia to make you understand that you're just a fucking asshole. (laughs) Fortune then headed east, towards the seaport of Fujiao, close to where he had had his near-miss with a gang of pirates years before. It was a potentially dangerous trip, as the waterways to the sea were rife with crime, the consequences of both wide-scale poverty and a large number of drug seekers who had turned to theft to feed their addiction. Unsurprising, as by the mid-19th century, an estimated one in three Chinese men had some degree of opium dependence. Its use widespread through every level of society, from the highest officials to the lowest beggars. (laughs) We don't do rounding here. 30%. On the trip to the coast, while staying at what was some combination of inn, opium den, and possibly brothel, Fortune was awoken by a commotion and rushed outside to find Sing Hu surrounded by eight to ten men, including <laughs> Fortune's own chair bearers, holding them off by means of a single lit stick of incense. It's it's less intimidating than a cigarette. It is a worse weapon than a cigarette. <laughs> like, I stand back. One of you might have asthma. <laughs> Fortune came to his servant's aid brandishing a pistol, which luckily no one else knew was unloaded due to the fact that the loading mechanism had rusted shut. These dudes were like wholly undone by the concept of humidity. Every time you just bring an iron weapon to a rainy subcontinent and suddenly it rusts shut. The seeds, the guns, it's all gone to shit. You can't rely on anything. It just defeats them. Just the very <laughs> existence of rain defeats them every time. It's my struggle. <laughs> my curse. <laughs> Once the mob had backed off, Fortune ascertained that Sing Hu had apparently reneged on a promised sum of approximately a single British shilling. Uh, he then abraded Sing Hu, ordering him to pay up. <laughs> <laughs> Again, just a bunch of dudes killing each other over laundry money. <laughs> just the kind of change you would need. To, to to poorly launder your pants. <laughs> <laughs> you 
You don't even get a dry cycle for that. That's just a wash. Uh, The chair bearers spent the rest of the night smoking opium with some of the other men, then disappeared before morning. Sing Hu was likewise unable to find anyone else willing to work for them, and thus Fortune ordered him to carry the luggage himself in a miserable, sodden trek through miles of countryside until they managed to get far enough away from the inn that they could find workers who hadn't heard of them yet. Hmm. That's, that's their only strategy. It's just like, well, let's just go somewhere people don't hate us. <laughs> we might be able to find somewhere that that's the case. We're clearly the most recognizable group of people in mainland China. At least they don't still have the dwarf with them, admittedly. <laughs> I mean, it helps. Or at least they didn't mention it. <laughs> I mean, they're, they're, they're not. They're not subtle. No. They're 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 a rant, they're a Scottish dude doing inept cosplay and a fucking former member of the imperial court, just stumbling around fighting people with sparklers and stealing plates, like going antiquing, <laughs> finding bargains. Upon his return to Shanghai in the autumn of 1849, Fortune received news of the sorry state of his first dispatch. But rather than continue the game of bureaucratic blame-shifting, he instead set himself to the problem of failure-proofing his second shipment. Rather than separating out the seeds, he would instead send them packed in soil terrariums of their own, with the likely prospect that they might even germinate in transit. He even threw in a mulberry bush for good measure, on the odd chance anyone would want to do some experiments with silk production. Just toss that in there. Just see how it goes. Shaking things up. The first terrarium made it to Falconer with an absolute plethora of healthy, sprouting tea plants. So Fortune followed up with another 14. This was an innovation that did away with the need to find and transport bulky seedlings. Now, plant hunters could instead carry thousands of light, super portable, high-quality seeds to the nearest port for max export of a highly profitable plant. They finally figured out, just put it in dirt and don't fuck with it. Yeah, put it in dirt, don't fuck with it. Just if only your co-worker could figure this out. Stop killing aloe plants. <laughs> They're the easiest plant not to kill. <laughs> just dust it occasionally. <laughs> Barely need to water it. Yeah, it it's basically a cact- like a, It's basically like a low-key cactus. It's a chill cactus. Some people just feel bad if they don't water the plant. They feel like they're neglecting it and it feels unloved. But, like, you just need to find a better way to love them. <laughs> Stop murdering them. Because your love is making them- Your love is poison. <laughs> it's poison, Janet. Everything you touch dies. Finally, Fortune was free to complete his final task. To acquire the necessary expertise- when he left Shanghai for Hong Kong in February of 1841, it was with eight green tea experts, sons of tea growers from deep inland, who had been approached through agents hired by Dent and Beale, who had themselves been firmly instructed to neither mislead or, heaven forbid, kidnap these men. Could they not just have done this in the first place? How is pay tea experts to teach us to grow tea like a last resort? How is that such a novel concept? I don't. I don't, because here's the thing, like, they had gotten tea experts, but, like, they'd been, like, low-quality tea experts because, like, they didn't know where to send people for them. I'm like, just tell them to, to send them to Anhui. You have Chinese agents who are willing to go to these places for you to hire people. Just tell them what you want. <laughs> don't kidnap people. Just pay them well. Find an expert. Yeah. This did not need to be even a fraction as hard as it was. I'm like, why is your first thought kidnapping and not fucking dental? <laughs> <laughs> Funny how that works. I mean, they weren't paying anybody in this operation. It was just for the love of the antiquing and bits of jade. Fortune had collected a large number of scent agents, 
packed, commonly packed with tea like jasmine and bergamot, and had likewise instructed Sing Hu and Wong gather various examples of farm equipment, ovens, spatula, and woks used in tea growing and processing. When he arrived in Calcutta, it was to find the new seedlings thriving marvelously under Falconer's care, and when he finally visited the Himalayan plantation, he told Jameson to stop overwatering his plants personally. <laughs> Step away from the hose. I've never gardened before. <laughs> Just a bunch of grown men fighting over plants. A shocking amount of our history, like our recent history and like patent law is to like, is to like sew up the legal loophole that fortune is able to take advantage of here. In the modern day, this is super illegal. It is so illegal. <laughs> Much of human history is, but then we were like, hey, let's, let's patent everything. Like there are just so many international laws that we specifically wrote with Britain in mind. Quit sneaking in, quit dressing up Scotsmen as Siberians and smuggling them into tea farms. That seems wrong. <laughs> this is weird behavior. Even if there's not a specific rule against this, there probably should be. <laughs> they just, they could have avoided so much by just paying for this. Just pay for this information and the people who know it. Like, pay for some seedlings. Well, they just, they just didn't trust Chinese people. They're just, they're just like, we will trust a random basically Chinese illiterate Scotsman before we trust anybody who is actually from this country. Well, there joke's on them, because this could have been, like, a weekend. <laughs> we could have settled this very quickly. By the time the Chinese noticed the theft of their closely held industry secrets, it was too late. Within only a couple decades, Indian tea production would come to outstrip Chinese tea exports in volume and price. A great boon to the company's coffers, at least until 1858, when the British government revoked its charter and assumed direct control in India in response to the Indian Rebellion of 1857. <laughs> Oof. A2 Brutus. Uh, yeah, that was really gory, by the way. I'm, I'm going to spare you the details, but it was... Oh, I'm sure it was... Violent and horrific. True crime against humanity. Um, I had to read the words. Like, it was like a very brief chapter, and it had the words like, bloody handprints of small children. I'm like, all right, that's enough. Fortune would return to China three more times in his life. The first soon after, both to hire another round of black tea experts compliment the green, and spy on the burgeoning opium-growing industry in China on behalf of the dying East India Company as it scrabbled to retain its position in the opium market. The second was in 1858 on behalf of the United States Patent Office, of all things, who Ooh. believed that they could automate the industry and wished to set up tea plantations in the Appalachian Mountains. As soon as the terrariums arrived, however, the Patent Office uh, commissioner fired fortune without ceremony. This was uh, thereafter cut off from communication with its tea trials in the southern United States due to the outbreak of the American Civil War. Oh, I hate it when that happens. Then scuttled entirely after the end of slavery increased the price of labor to the point that American tea could not hope to compete with the Asian market. Oh, well, that has troubling implications. Uh. Yeah, so if you're wondering, hey, why have I never heard of, like, Appalachian tea? Turns out the end of slavery. And I'm not sure, I'm not, like, I admit, many of us would say, like, was it worth it? Was it worth ending slavery if we couldn't have Appalachian tea? And the answer is yes. <laughs> Absolutely. 100%. No. <laughs> uh... Fortune uh, never did receive the money he was owed by the from the patent office, by the way. Just fucking this guy over. Fortune's final trip in 1962 took him to both China and Japan, though this time he traveled as a private citizen. In 1962? 
1962. Sorry, 1862. I was like, how long did this man live? Does he still walk among us? I, I, I have a confession to make, Janelle. I am Robert Fortune. <laughs> ah, Judah. <laughs> I, I, I've, been, I've been an extremely tall Scottish man pretending to be a short, dumpy French woman this entire time. <laughs> a master of disguise. A short, dumpy French person of ambiguous gender. <laughs> no one ever suspects the short, dumpy in French. Of being a hundred-year-old, over a hundred-year-old Scottish spies. Sp- slash botanists. <laughs> Just like a vaguely pathetic Aragorn. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Fortune died a wealthy man in 1880, and his wife Jane burnt all of his personal papers for reasons unknown. Oh, that's also got some troubling implications. It's a weird, weird note. China's loss of its tea export monopoly was one factor among many that led to increased instability and eventually the downfall of the Qing dynasty, setting the conditions for the rise of the Chinese Nationalist Party. Uh, It helped bolster the economy of the British Empire, contributing to their dominant position in the global community, and it likewise democratized tea drinking across the world. All of these things were shaped by trends and collective actions far greater than any one person, but for one brief moment, a single man of no particular stature or provenance managed to have an incredibly oversized influence on the turning of history. Well, there's an inspirational story we can get behind. Yeah. Steal things from superpowers. Yeah. See how it goes. <laughs> if maybe one day your seemingly inconsequential action will lead to the deaths of millions. <laughs> well, words, words to live by. I am Jessica. And I'm still Janelle. And this has been Histories and Mysteries. Hooray!